This whole country just like my flock of sheep. We want to know what you intend to give away to the communists. He will bring destruction to our traditions. He looked in his heart and he thought in all humility how he'd like to try and change things. Rip off this city for a hundred grand? Yeah. It's, a, it's a groovy thing to do. I propose to demand from the House the immediate removal of the President of the United States. The Anglo bosses look down on you and you hate them for it. Stay in your place, that's what they tell you. But why must you say to me, stay in your place? Do you feel better having someone lord in you? Whose neck shall I stand on to make me feel superior? And what will I have out of it? I don't want anything lord than I am. I am low enough already. I want to rise and to push everything up with me as I go. And if you can't understand this, you are a fool. Hello, welcome to Decades Podcast. My name is Deb Kuykendall. I'm Nicole Westry. I'm Jacob Kuykendall. And I'm Sharmia Chimera. <gasps> we have a guest. <laughs> Hello, Sharmia. <laughs> welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being our guest. Famous uh, podcast guest, Sharmia. <laughs> I've been on one podcast before, not to brag. <laughs> so, periodically, uh, I forget to put the intro in the front of our episode, <laughs> and so nobody says what this what we do here on this podcast. What do so, we do on this podcast? This is what we do on this podcast. We watch a movie from a previous decade, and then we watch a more current movie with a similar theme, and we compare the two. So for today's podcast, we watched a movie from 1954 called The Salt of the Earth. We're doing political movies this season. This season, yeah. And the second movie that we watched is a movie from 2000, a little bit older than what we normally would watch for a current movie, but um, it was thematically correct. So we watched a movie called Bread and Roses. Mm-hmm. Which, uh... Not bad. Yeah, I'd never heard of. Yeah, Had you either. ever heard of either of these movies? No, I've heard of, of them Salt of the life. Earth. Oh, have you? Yeah, it's a pretty famous labor movement movie. I've heard of that term, salt of the earth. I've heard that phrase. It's from the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's where that phrase comes from. Okay. Yeah, bread and roses is also a labor union phrase. Can you explain to me what bread... I did not understand that. Aside from just like, one's a cheap thing, one's an expensive thing? I mean, it's basically just saying that... You heard it in the movie itself Mm -hmm. that we want bread, but we want roses too, is that it's not just enough to ask for the bare minimum that all people deserve to be treated with dignity and to have beauty in their lives and Mm. to live lives, you know, not just at the very minimum of what is available, but to have some joy and color and and beauty in their lives. So that's where the phrase bread and roses came from, as I understand it. I'm sure it has a much deeper history than my cursory Google search. Well, historically... Rose, uh, I can't remember her last name, but it was given, uh, it was a feminist union organizer who, she made a speech, and and in fact, I wrote some of it down so I could read the part where she actually says bread and roses. Well, you look that up. Can I interrupt for a second? Sure. Charmy, would you mind introducing, you're actually (laughs) an activist in some form. Would you mind introducing like that part of your background? Yeah. So um, I've been involved in activism for at least the t- last 10 years since I really, mm-hmm. since I started at um, the University of Washington as an undergraduate, that's when I really got involved and started identifying myself as an activist. 
um, there's a lot of discussion that could go around what what sure. you know qualifies as as an activist or activism. Um, it's a very it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I call myself an activist because I try to engage with things that I really care about and to live my values and put my money where my mouth is. So if I say that I believe in something, I try to do something about it. And you are in the head of the Seattle Taking Action. I was yes, trying to I, figure I, out I what you founded I co-founded yes. a political um, action group, not a PAC, but like a political action yeah. organization uh, in the wake of the 2016 election with one of my friends from the University of Washington mm-hmm. called Seattle Taking Action. It is a, we're a part of the larger Indivisible movement, mm-hmm. which um, folks might have heard of, but um, it was started by a bunch of uh, Obama congressional staffers who wanted to give people an outlet for what they were feeling after the 2016 election and the outcome of that election to dire- direct that, <laughs> yeah, to direct those bad feelings into organization, into action, which is very resonant with what we're talking yeah. about today. There's a lot of power in collective action and just coming together with a group of people who share your values and in doing something about those values. That's right. I, I just wanted to bring that up as sort of a context for, <laughs> for you're you're not just our friend. You yeah. actually have some connection to the, the topic we're talking yes. about. Yes. All right, so the history of Bread and Roses? Yes, please. All right, so Rose Schneiderman was a socialist, feminist, labor union leader, and she famously, well, I don't know if she famously gave a speech. She gave a speech. Her name is Rose. Her name is Rose, yes. Um, And the speech, I think this is the end of the speech, and I'm going to read a little bit of it. What the woman who labors wants is the right to live, not simply exist. The right to life as the rich woman has the right to life, and the sun and music and art. You have nothing that the humblest worker has not a right to have also. The worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Mm. So it's basically not subsistence living. You, you need to have, you need to have access to all the things. Um, So maybe legend has it or historically James Oppenheim, a poet took that phrase and wrote a poem. And before we watched the movie, I had you watch a clip from the movie pride, which is, one of my favorite movies, Mm -hmm. which is also about a strike in which a woman gets up and sings a song. That song is James Oppenheimer's poem set to music. And it was set to music by a woman named Mimi, Mimi Farina. Uh, Joan Baez asked her to set that poem to music. And then it's been a protest song uh, since the seventies. What is the movie pride about? You didn't Pride give is us about, any context. Well, I'm, I was going to use it for my um, plugs later, but okay. Pride is about a group of gay activists in Britain. This actually happened in the 80s. Oh. They go to support Welsh miners who are on strike. Okay. Um, From that clip, I assumed, oh, this must be Irish independence or something. <laughs> no, they were Welsh miners. They were on strike, and these gay activists recognized that they weren't the only ones being oppressed, mm. and they decided to raise funds and help these miners uh, during their strike. Mm, okay. It's a really good movie. I recommend it highly. It's from 2014. I recognize Sounds great. Moriarty from Sherlock in that crowd. <laughs> I like yep. the intersectionality. Yeah, yeah that's nice. I mean, um, all white people, but... The other, the other <laughs> hey, thing... still, labor, gay rights movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the phrase bread and, bread and roses is also associated with a textile strike that occurred a couple of years after the speech was given and about a year after the poem was written. Okay. In 1912 in Massachusetts, Massachusetts there was a large textile strike. Mostly women... Mostly immigrants, 
um, that went on for quite a long time, and it became known as the Bread and Roses Strike because the that poem was set to music by someone at that time as well. I don't, I could not find the original music mm. that it was set to, um, but they sang that song, they sang that poem as okay. part of their, you know, rallying cry, and so it was came to be known as the Bread and Roses Strike. Are you gonna sing the song later? No. What I am, am going to do is tack, I, I will put it at the end of the mm-hmm. podcast. When I edit the podcast, I'm going to put that uh, that scene from Pride at okay. the end so that you can hear the song. We watched oh. it on YouTube, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. YouTube. Cool. But you should just watch the whole movie. <laughs> okay, I will. And a, a piece of trivia, the woman who started singing the song mm-hmm. was on uh, the UK The Voice, apparently. Mm-hmm. And did well, I assume. Uh, well, she didn't win. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right well um all right so we need should... to synopsize the do we want to do the new movie first or the old movie first the old movie has so much stuff behind it that it's we should do the new movie yeah first. switch it up guys um i can synopsize the new one although i will need everybody's help because i'm sure i forgot some things okay can do uh so this movie centers on a mexican immigrant maya hernandez who the movie opens with her i think being given passage by a coyote Mm -hmm. into los angeles right Mm -hmm. yes it's la um probably set in 2010 it was 2000 i believe or or the movie was released in 2001 so it was i believe in um the late 90s the movie was set i think i want to say 99 i think i remember seeing somewhere they showed the date 1999 i feel like they mentioned that now that you you bring it up uh so she is brought to la uh she is there to meet with her sister and stay with her sister um rosa rosa as soon as she gets out of the van, she meets Rosa and then is basically immediately kidnapped by two... Well, Rosa was unable to pay the full amount that the coyotes oh. demanded. And yeah. so because she couldn't pay the full amount, they took whatever money she did have and then said, too bad, yeah. and then drove away with Maya. Yeah, Maya, they're basically like, you're our sex slave now to pay off the debt. Uh, they kidnap her... The one of them, one of the coyotes, uh, take her to a, an apartment or a hotel room or something, imprison her, and say, All they, right, they flip a coin, yeah. Yeah. flip a coin <laughs> to determine who's gonna rape her. Uh, they take her to a, an apartment, and I don't know, he one she, of the, he takes a shower, she fools the, the guy who's who has taken her, um, into getting into the shower, and she takes the keys and his stuff. Uh, and runs runs away. I mean, that's... she establishes herself really earlier. Her character as being an uh, an idealist or an optimist or somebody who believes that she can get out of things. Or I yes. think that's part and of what that is. And she's very resourceful. Yeah. That's that's established early on. Is that she basically realizes the situation she's in and immediately is like, "Oh, that's great. Why don't you hop in the shower and I'll take and get get the room ready," uh, and uses this as an opportunity to run away. Um, which she does. She reconnects up with her sister. Uh, she immediately tells her sister, like, hey, I need a job where you work as a janitor um, or on the janitorial staff at this building. Her sister says, no, 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 I can't do that. Uh, but I did get you a job as a bartender at a local bar, um, which she starts working at. at a, it seems like a, a Mexican-themed mm-hmm. bar. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's not a good job. She's immediately harassed. Yeah, yeah. it's bad from the get-go. Uh, she does not want to work there. She starts trying to hustle to get a job with her sister at as a cleaner on the janitorial staff with Angel... Janitorial Jan- Company. A big... Angel cleaner Nationwide. Like yeah. Um, janitorial Staffing. agency. So Maya goes to uh, Rose's place of work. She works in this skyscraper uh, on the janitorial staff. She goes there to hustle, and she runs into... Ruben. Ruben, uh, <laughs> who is concerned because the security guard has basically told Maya, take a hike, I don't want you soliciting around here. Um, they make friends. She's still not able to get a job there, although she does basically get in, I think, in the scene immediately following this. Yes. Her sister goes in, is gone for a while, comes back, and then waves her in. Gotcha. Okay, so then Maya makes it so she can talk to the local boss. For the boss of the Angel Cleaners, they're at that building, uh, played by George Lopez. I cannot remember his name, the character's name. Um, he's not a very nice guy. He's a bad guy. He says, well, you're pretty, so you can have a job here, unlike all these old hags who still work here. Uh, but I am going to need you to pay your first month's salary to me as a deposit. You can split that over two months. Don't worry about it. Uh, but you can start. And so Maya begins her job as a janitor at this place. He also immediately sexually harasses her and tells mm-hmm. her to wear her uniform very tightly, but for her own safety so it doesn't get snagged on anything. Yes. Uh, Maya begins her job here. She's not doing a great job, but one of the older janitorial staff kind of gives her the shows of the ropes and is like, hey, don't worry about it. Here's how you do it right. She doesn't know how to vacuum. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) She's just going too fast. (laughs) She's vacuuming very hard uh, because they need to get all their work done by the end of the shift. That is a key point of this job or they'll get in trouble. Um I don't know what the next plot point. Adrian Brody. Sam Shapiro, who is a representative of a local union, shows up and is being chased by the security security staff. And Maya graciously helps him by hiding him in her garbage can. It's basically a Keystone Cops style chase with the security guards. And Adrian Brody being this charming... She doesn't even know why he's there, but... Yeah, and it's established even before this that Maya is a rabble rouser. She, in the first on her first day, like gets angry at the very rude lawyers who work on her floor and presses all the buttons on the elevator so the next people have to go through them all. Uh, she helps Adrian Brody escape from the security guards. He uh, likes her, says thank you, um, and he gives. He basically says like, "Hey, the janitors." don't get their building are non-union and don't get paid enough um and i'm trying to make sure that doesn't happen anymore the white janitors where i work get paid more also he's there to steal a list of the names of the janitors that's what he steals right well and he doesn't work as a janitor he works for a union union. he's the union he's a representative okay union rep he's the barnes the barns oh from this. this is in the Parallel. future we'll start talking about barns but he's the barns figure if not the barns character he's the union representative um we see kind of the mm, the way that the workers are treated at this building by the angel janitorial 
company, which is very poorly. They have their poor benefits. One lady is shows up late and doesn't. They don't have any benefits. Yeah, they have no benefits. (laughs) They're way underpaid. They're treated like crap. Um, The an older lady forgets her glasses and shows up late, and she's fired for it. Um, And there's some conflict between the Hispanic uh, janitorial staff and a Russian janitor who works on the in the company right but before the lady comes to work without her glasses and is fired uh the adrian brody character sam shapiro Mm -hmm. shows up at maya and rose's home and sort of tries to talk them into the idea of union unionizing because that it's the lady with the glasses is kind of the the thing that flips a switch in in Maya. Maya's. Maya's, I get their names mixed <laughs> up, in Maya's yeah. mind that maybe unionizing is a good idea. Also, you find out when he goes to the house that Bert, uh, Rose's husband, who is a white man, yes. has diabetes and can't and they can't afford his treatment because they don't have any medical benefits. Yes. Yep, really. uh, Bert, her husband, who I recognize from The Wire, I think. Mm-hmm. I've seen that actor in a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, basically the movie you know, continues on with Sam is trying to get the members of this janitorial staff to unionize, to join his protest, to raise their wages and specifically get health care for the workers there. Um, And the union or the company bosses um, through George Lopez and his superiors and security guards are pressuring them to nod or fire them or harass them or do what they can to break this it's not a strike exactly this union um so they start to fight back um they start staging protests they are they sam shows up he he calls a meeting for this non-union group and basically says here's the plan you've got the building owners you've got the tenants and you've got uh the owners of the janitorial company if you pressure the tenants they will pressure the building owners and the janitorial company to. He also explains earlier in the movie that that they could that they keep passing the buck between them, right? So they work for a contractor. They mm-hmm. they work for a contractor that provides janitorial services, and the contractor works for the owner of the building, or you know is paid by the owner of the building. And when they go to say. To the, we need more. to the contractor, the contractor will say, well, it's the owner of the building that it won't give us enough. And then when they go to the con- the owner of the building, he'll say, well, the contractor's responsible for that. Yeah, and he says basically that this is a part of a bidding system. They've underbid. They, the way that they got this contract for the janitorial services by underbidding, so they're not going to pay you anything and they're not going to give you any benefits. I think it's worth noting, too, that several of the staff are undocumented. And so Angel yes. Cleaning Company knows that and uses that against the cleaning staff with threats of deportation, threats of criminal, you know, action mm-hmm. against these people. They're really taking advantage of the fact that these are the most vulnerable, most marginalized people. And they they're able to underpay them and underbid because they pay so far below the minimum wage to these workers because these workers they assume have no way of fighting back or of protesting that incredibly low pay. And that's why they're able to underbid so many companies. So Sam sort of lays that out for them and introduces this idea of collective action as a way to fight back and demand similar rights to other unionized janitorial companies who are getting paid much more, who have paid sick leave, 
who have vacation days, who have health benefits, things that all of us would, not all of us, but most people would agree workers deserved. So That's right. I, th- I think that's right. And Sam also tells them how successful these campaigns have been in the past and how they've unionized other buildings in the area. Um, so he sort of promises them, you know, these tactics that I'm telling you about, they have, you know, a payoff if you just listen to me. Um, and, and the way that the bosses at Angel uh, discuss this is they're basically like, we're actually good guys. We've hired you and you're undocumented and we wouldn't otherwise, like, you can't work anywhere else. So we're actually doing you a favor. And, uh, and they talk about, you know, you, you don't want to pay 20% of your wages to the union, you know. Like, yeah, you don't want to give them your money. They're just going to take all your money and you're not going to get anything for it. That from the same character that took her first month's mm-hmm. wages. Yep. Yeah. yeah, but for a good reason uh, <laughs> to be determined. Um, so their boss finds the uh, diagram that Sam Shapiro has drawn um, and says, I know you guys held a meeting. I'm on to you guys. I know you're trying to unionize. If you do this, I'm going to fire you all. Um, you're going to be in real trouble. And I'm a good guy anyways. I hired you even though you don't have your papers. Um, Maya goes and confronts Sam Shapiro about this. And he's like, well, whoops, I forgot to throw it away. My bad. Um, and they fall in love, <laughs> basically, in that scene. <laughs> I don't know I if they're in love. Oh. I'll complain. More, I'll complain about that later. Yeah, more well, like a flirtation, <laughs> but you know, gotta gotta keep things a little spicy if people get bored with you know basic human dignity. And <laughs> yeah, that's rights. right. Uh, but he's just like, oh shoot, my bad. Um, but they begin to protest. Uh, the act they start warming up to maybe putting together a union. They start working with you know putting together collective bargaining. Uh, they show up to a party, a merger party between two law firms where there's a lot of celebrities there and start saying like, you're, you go work, your office is in a building where they underpay your, pay the janitorial staff and we're being mistreated because you guys don't care. They Even, were, they were real celebrities, by the way. Yeah. They were real <laughs> celebrities. Ron Perlman. There were some cool cameos. Yeah. Um, but even before that, Perez, um, talks to one of the staff and sort of tries to bribe her into turning on who is in charge of, you know, organizing these union movements. And he says, you know, in, in the new building we're opening up, I think you would be great as a manager. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's something you could take on? You could get a vacation. Have you ever had a vacation before? You could take a week off. It's fully paid. You'll get benefits. health insurance. And she's like, yeah. yeah, that sounds great. And then he says, okay, you can go. Oh, actually, one more thing. Can you tell me who organized this union movement? And, and she, she sort of, she doesn't, which is... But it's very tense. <laughs> yes, she doesn't, and she's fired for it. She is. Mm-hmm. It's Bertha, I believe, or Berta. Mm-hmm. Berta. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm. Some of this is a little out of order. We find out that. Yeah, and there's another character that you haven't talked about, who is kind of a thread through the whole thing, which is the uh, kid who's studying for law school the whole time. Ruben. Yeah, that's right, Ruben. Ruben. Yeah, the first guy who helped her. He has a basically a grant, like a scholarship grant, where if he can pay enough for 20% of his first semester, the scholarship will cover the rest. So he's trying to save all his money. And so he doesn't really want to have a strike because he desperately needs his money, even though he supports the strike in general. He's like, I've been saving for five years to just put together enough money to go to school. and I don't want to jeopardize that. I think it's important to note that he's been saving for five years to get $1,600. $1, yes. Like that's how poorly they are paid. 
Yeah, and they say later, I think they're paid five twenty-five an hour with no benefits. Yeah, there was a point when uh, Sam Shapiro was at the at their at Rosa and Maya's house where he shows them a pay stub pay stub from several years before from where people 80s. got paid more. Yeah, yeah, and then they developed this situation of the contractors and the building owners, and now they are being paid less than minimum wage. And they ask Sam, I think, at that what he gets paid, and he says, I make $22,000 an hour. Which... $22,000 a year. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, $22,000 a year. Which is sorry. not very much. No, but well, they're like, but in the 90s, it was more, more than, than it, it is, is now. now. I mean, it still yeah. was not a lot. Yeah. It, that's not a lot of money. But and it's it, enough to live on. For union organizing, yeah, those are not very high-paid jobs. I think it's also worth noting that Throughout the whole film, there's a tension between Maya and her sister Rosa. Yes. Because Maya is for unionizing. Mm -hmm. She believes that, you know, collective action will work. Mm -hmm. There's a way forward to get the benefits that they need, particularly because her brother-in-law is sick with diabetes, as we've mentioned, and can't afford insulin, can't afford a treatment for his eyes, um, can't afford surgery. Mm -hmm. And so she's for unionizing, and Rosa says, no. We cannot unionize. I can't risk losing this job. It's not worth it. How am I going to keep my family afloat? She has two children as well. Mm -hmm. How am I going to support this family if I don't have this job? Unionizing is too big of a risk. And that, I think, is a very important thing Mm -hmm. to note for unions in general. It's a very risky thing Mm -hmm. to commit to unionize when there is no union. The threat of deportation if you're undocumented. The threat of legal action against you. The threat of losing your job when you may not have many other opportunities and the way that corporations in particular use that fear use that vulnerability in order to coerce and scare people out of unionizing out of collective action and collective bargaining and we see that throughout the film mm-hmm. and, we're, and we're gonna see it in the other film we watched too which mm-hmm. is basically like these are vulnerable same people. tactics for hundreds of years in the history of unions mm-hmm. vulnerable people trying to organize and demand just basic basic equality and people with much more than them using fear using coercion the threat of violence if not violence outright to deter them from that kind of collective action and collective bargaining yeah i think that's right uh so we so the news gets involved they know about the protests that they staged during the merger Mm -hmm. and get a lot of public attention on the issue which makes perez and the other staff who are in charge of the janitorial company, really angry. Mm-hmm. And they go in and name names and call out people who were there and fire them they, on the spot. They bring in uh, strike breakers, yes. too. Yes. Scabs. Or, yeah. Well, I don't I even know. I think they were, strike, they looked they... like they were pretty undocumented as well. Like they just pulled five new people who were desperate for a job and fired five old people on the spot. Yeah. Right. Uh, is this the point where they go, they take their lunch break? No, no, the... that was... Long before. Later. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is this is when they all turn on and think that the Russian woman told oh, who the, was involved. Um, and, oh, there's a confrontation, yeah. right? And Maya says, "Well, it must be this Russian woman. She's mean. Yeah, she must have named who were involved in the union or the in potential the, union." Maya tries to take the blame for it because she doesn't want Ruben fired because she knows he needs this money for the scholarship. Right, and instead, I think. The Russian, says, the Russian woman says, no, it was your sister. It was Maya. Rosa. It was Rosa. 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 Sorry. Yeah, because she wasn't there. And she was like, you know, where's your sister? Why isn't she here yet? You know, it was definitely her. She got offered the promotion instead. 
and took it to right oh, telling you guys speech yeah. yeah so maya confronts rosa and rosa gives one of the best performances <sighs> i have ever seen why that actress wasn't nominated for an academy award i don't understand but she gave this incredibly impassioned speech about everything that she has sacrificed mm-hmm. for her family for maya included how she prostituted herself to pay for maya to go to school in mexico how she still does it does it um to support her family because she gets paid five dollars an hour and doesn't have health insurance and has a sick husband and says that this is her life that she Mm -hmm. has to suffer in order to give her kids her family the chance at any kind of a better life and maya don't you dare judge me and she tells the decisions I make. She tells Maya, that's how I got you this current job is, you know, I slept with Perez. Right. right. So the basically boss. that scene where Maya is waiting outside, Rosa goes inside and comes back a little bit later. Mm-hmm. In the interim, she has had slept sex with, with uh, Perez. Whatever, Perez. Sam Shapiro. Right, yeah. Oh, no. no, we're talking about Maya, no, 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 the, no, boss. Yeah. the boss. Yeah. 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 George so, Lopez's character. Yeah. In this, this is, that's where she confesses that the way that she got her job was by having sex with Perez. And if you look back at the movie in the timeline, she waits outside for a while and then her mm-hmm. sister comes back and waves her in. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's happened in the interim is that she's had sex with, sex yeah, with she's Perez. She's convinced him, but mm-hmm. that's, that is how she's... Right. And Maya is... Maya, I, I don't know why I no, can't keep right. their... Na- I know that is right, <laughs> but I, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. I don't... Uh, Maya is so oblivious to what it actually takes to survive. Even though, I mean, she... I mean, there she's is sexual violence threatened to her immediately. Yeah, I don't think she's oblivious. I think she just didn't know. She didn't know that the lengths that Rosa had to go to in order to to keep her family afloat. Yeah. I don't think there's anything... Like, Maya didn't do anything wrong. I mean... No, it's that's hard whole, for both yeah. of them. I'm not saying that she did anything wrong, but they establish her character as being very optimistic and idealistic mm-hmm. without having... And at that point in the movie, you realize that she hasn't been exposed to as much of the... Underbelly. Right. <laughs> I think so, because she... I mean, she... It's shown from the get-go, from her first day at work, like she is willing to have fun with it. In... It, it, you know, which for lack seems, of a better word, right, which is like she's willing to threaten this job that her sister has just gotten her, mostly to yank the chains of the people that are mistreating her. Yeah, it seems like she takes risks that if she was... That her sister a, would not. Right, that I if mean, she had a full view of the whole scope of how things work, she might not take those risks. Right. Or, I mean, I don't know if I'd agree with that, but she at least was not aware that her sister was really sacrificing a lot because... Shortly after this, uh, she robs a convenience store. But that Uh, also seems like taking a risk because you don't have a sense of what the consequences of your actions are going to be. Well, to be clear, she robbed the convenience store. This was, this was, we skipped a whole important part (laughs) of the the movie. So um, basically what ended up happening is that they did form a union the yes. Angel Cleaning Company in that particular building. They joined forces with other unionized mm-hmm. janitorial staff at other buildings around and at a certain point decided to take collective action and occupied the building that Maya and her sister Rosa work in. Right. And were then um, arrested. There was 
a bunch of cops that came that broke up the union. They were peacefully protesting, but because ostensibly it was on private property, it was unlawful, and so they got taken out. Um, but that's the point where yeah, the her reason... getting fingerprinted at that arrest is what they link back to her. Oh, Robin. right. Yeah. It was before that. Robbery. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that she... was right after she got fired when she sort of was trying to stand up for Reuben. And then she also robbed the gas station for Reuben so she could purchase like this expensive pen for him. No, no she, she gives him she money. Robbed the... Oh, did she give him actual money? Because, yeah, he, because he, he was not able to afford mm-hmm. that 20% the, the of the tuition in order to attend law Because I thought he told her that semester. he had saved enough, but he also no. had 125 extra, remember? No, he, he only needed $1,600 more. He'd gotten halfway there, and he was like, I'm so close, I just have to work a little what was, further. What was the 125 extra he had that one time then that he had told her about? I can't and remember, he was like, I saved right. it for us, because he's like in love with her, and he confesses his love to her. But there is he when he first says, I have this scholarship, but I need to pay for it, he's like, I've spent five years saving this much, and I'm so close, I just got to save a little more. And then because of the the strike and, and the union action, because he can't they, do it. Perez they got fired yeah. several of them. Right. And yeah. so she robs the, con, the convenience store and comes to him and says, I got you the rest of the money you need and this nice pen. Don't she, ask me where pen. this money okay. came from. Because okay. I was like, I know then she gave him a pen. She, did, yes. she did yeah. not give him money. It was a pen. No. It's she really gave, hard she to did, Oh, she didn't give him the money. She gave him I paid for your right. thing. I she paid your and then, and then a pen is like a gift. Okay. Right. I was like, you guys, she handed him a pen. I remember this. <laughs> she she did, but also an envelope full of money. No. No, full no. of the, the, your bill has been paid. Oh, right. She yeah. already paid the money. This is hard. Summarizing <laughs> yeah. a movie is hard. So after this happened, and she basically, as far as we can tell, gets away with robbing this She was, she's, she's, she's a really great smart. job. Yeah. She's very resourceful, just as we saw at the beginning of the movie. And she does a really good job of robbing this convenience store. She can convinces the man who's run, who's running the she walks in she says can i use the bathroom she goes to the bathroom and then she starts screaming oh no somebody had a heart attack it's a dead body yeah and so he goes in there and he lock she locks him in there and then just takes all the money out of the till and then an, another man a trucker comes in and she says oh no there's a pervert in the bathroom <laughs> go beat him up and he says you go call 911 and i'll go take care of the pervert and then she just leaves <laughs> with yeah. all the money which would have been, she would have gotten away with it, except <laughs> then her union occupies the building, they get arrested, and everybody gets fingerprinted, and in the fingerprinting process, they're like, oh, we, your fingerprint matches a previous robbery, uh, and the, or I guess the arresting officer, some mem- some officer sits her down and says, well, because of this, we're going to deport you. Um, this is a felony, and if you come back into the United States, you're you're gonna serve jail time. This, you're getting off easy. But this is happening simultaneously as everyone who's been arrested, they're jam packed right. into the prison, and Adrian Brody is on one of the payphones in the prison and is getting the good news mm-hmm. that. The company has decided to cave and meet their demands. Right. So he's like, "We won," and then Yay. and then she's in the same scene, like but carted you out. Did not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's sort of up and down for them at the same moment. And so she basically just gets on a bus, deporting her back to Mexico. Is mm-hmm. how the movie ends. Um, she is put on a bus. She's put on a bus. Everybody says goodbye. Her sister runs after the bus, and they sort of have a moment of forgiving each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she gets health insurance, we assume. I mean, it, it, the strike worked, but Maya uh, go, is deported as a result. The end, mm-hmm. right? I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that covers the broad strokes. Is there anything I, 
I big I forgot. She has. A, we'll remember later. She has <laughs> a sort of relationship with Adrian Brody's character, but it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't no. matter. And at it all. shouldn't have happened. It was very weird. It was weird. He does not come like he does not come across well. I think from the water. he is there his is heart's in the right place. Interesting and potentially problematic issues yeah. with his character and the the union in general with mm-hmm. how they they approach and interact with these undocumented janitorial staff. But we can talk yes. about that later. No, we should talk about it now. Yeah, yeah. now's the time. The synopsis Let's critique. Is done. <laughs> oh. Do you have something you'd like to say, Charmy? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a history in union organizing of racism. There. Despite unions, but just in union organizing, right? No other circumstances. Yeah, nowhere else. It's only unions. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, No, it's everywhere, and unions are not exempt from that. But there is a long history in unions of racial segregation and racial discrimination, and Mm. that carries forward into the modern day. And so, it's. I thought it was interesting that Sam Shapiro's character is white. He does not speak Spanish, and he is the. He leader. is the 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 he union. He speaks Spanish. He speaks minimal Spanish, but like throughout the movie, people had to translate for him. I mm-hmm. think maybe he understood Spanish, but he communicated primarily in English mm-hmm. with an overwhelmingly Hispanic staff, right? Uh, of the janitorial company. I mean, they're basically almost with very few exceptions. They're either Hispanic or black, and most of them are women. Yes, and most of them are older women. Honestly, mm-hmm. like yes, with very few exceptions. And so it's interesting that Sam Shapiro, and there's that scene where he's at the union headquarters speaking to, I think, his boss, and his boss is yelling at him and saying, hey, we're not making enough movement with this angel cleaning company, Mm -hmm. and if you can't get something done, we're walking away. And Sam says, no, what about all of these people that we've committed to, that we've said we're going to stand behind them? And his superior says, too bad. If you you can't make something happen, we're out of there. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting dynamic when you look at union organizing, which is founded on ideals of equality, of equal treatment, of equal rights, of equal access to health care, equal mm-hmm. pay, etc. And even within that organization, there's hierarchy. It's stratified. They're, they're not always so magnanimous in how they deal with the people that they're trying to represent as we saw in that scene where the union boss is basically saying, hey, forget these, you know, undocumented janitorial staff. If you can't make something happen, they're on their own. Is that what kind of union representation (laughs) is that? And what's going on? And the fact that, you know, as far as I could tell, you know, we didn't get a lot of, you know, scenes in that union organizing building, but did they have any people of color on their staff? Did they have Hispanic speakers? Did they have people who had served in the positions that, they're they're trying to unionize around do they have any former janitors on their staff we don't know but that was an interesting component where you know you almost see this white savior swoop in to these you know undocumented people of color workers with very little rights very little agency and say hey you take all the risks (laughs) and i believe rosa even or no maya even asked him at one point what do you risk What do you risk, Sam Shapiro? Nothing. I risk nothing. And it's all of these people who are risking everything. Their ability to live in the United States, to support their families, to have a job, to try to make a better life for themselves. Mm -hmm. They put everything on the line in order to try to get what is due to them. Well, and I think the movie, 
I guess I'll, uh, this is a to its credit and to its detriment. To its credit, the movie calls out a lot of these issues. There mm-hmm. are lines that in a worse movie, they would not even mention the fact that like, Sam, you're not really putting anything on the line here. Sam, you're in a position where this is not going to impact you. To its detriment, Sam Shapiro, and probably the reason Adrian Brody is in this movie, is he gets all the he does all the monologuing. He has all the speeches about what's important and what's it what's life all about. And Maya's portion of this movie is to learn from other characters what it's like. Um, she learns from Sam, what about unioning, you know, union unionizing. She learns from her sister, well, what are the consequences from this? Um, and so I think by the end of the movie, you're kind of left. Like, the movie puts a lot of the moral weight on Sam Shapiro's character and Adrian Brody for no reason, I think. For the reason because he's a famous actor and they, and also maybe uh, Pilar Padilla's, uh, I don't know, maybe just not. They didn't have her have the big speech at the end about, let's have this union, here's what we need. Well, I have a theory. Sure. <laughs> One possible mm-hmm. reason is that this movie is directed by an English man mm-hmm. and written by a white man. I, I can't remember where he's from. Sure. So, I mean, I was kind of amazed by how well they were able to... Um, like, that, that speech by Rosa mm-hmm. yeah, uh, right. ostensibly was written by a white man. No, I, I, and, I, you know, I have mixed I mean, feelings I mean, the this movie, movie itself is basically a white director who, is, who makes a lot of movies like this that have a social mm-hmm. sort of message behind them. A white man doing basically what the Sam Shapiro character does in this movie, right? right? They, they didn't, although, I mean, Rosa was the most heroic character, it seemed to me. Oh, she for sure. She was the sure. most heroic, most, the strongest character. But although some of that she was reading into that as she well. She was also kind of the villain, too. Sure. Uh, Maya, to me, was more like uh, a pinball, mm-hmm. like battered around by the, or moved around by the things around her. Right. Uh, one of them being Shapiro. One of the things moving her around being. I don't know that I'd agree with that. I wouldn't take. I think she had more agency than that in the film and making her own decisions. But I I take your point that what often happens in especially movies about people of color is that they're they're shown through the lens of a white man. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're hundreds of Hollywood movies that have nothing to do. There was no white man in the actual story, but in order to make it more quote unquote relatable to the audience, they insert a white person in order to tell the story through their lens, the story of a marginalized group of people of color through the lens of a white man and able to make it theoretically more palatable for a white audience to make it more relatable to them. And I think we see that with the character of Sam Shapiro played by Adrian Brody why is he there? Why wasn't, was it actually yeah. a white union organizer or was it a Hispanic union organizer who had actually worked in the position that they were organizing around? I don't know. I, I think it was based on a true story. Yeah, it's based on the Justice for Janitors movement. Um, I mean, which, uh, oh, go ahead. And it, it may well have been, which had come from, uh, they were using strategies that they had used for farmers and then they moved them into this janitorial space and some of that involved this the scene where they go to the party and try to influence 
celebrities, that was one of their strategies. It's like get celebrities on our side and then we get more into the public eye and people can see what our issues mm -hmm. are. That's That was one of the strategies of that movement, which is still going on, obviously. Yeah. I and, mean, sorry. Go ahead, Nicole. I was going to say, to your point, that was one of the issues I had with the film was in order to make it more palatable, they sort of shoehorned this romance in, which mm -hmm. really didn't need to be in there. And it's the same problem I had with the East, where it very much yeah. undermines the main female character because all of her motivation is tainted by her crush on this guy <laughs> yeah. who is actually doing the activism and actually has, you know, sort of ethics and a moral compass. And she's just sort of like, but he's cute and he fascinates me. And so I also agree with his positions as opposed to actually having contemplated them and believing in them. And it, it's frustrating <laughs> that they keep writing women this way in these mm -hmm. movies. And even if you look at the cover art for the movie, it stands like a romance. Like it's, it's the got two roses of them. Right on yeah, the title. It's it really looks like the two of them just sort of falling in love and, you know, this is the English patient or something like that. Like it was ugh. interesting though, because she gets, you know, taken back to Mexico at the end of the film and I expected to see some emotional parting <laughs> love scene. No. And to the director's credit, even though there was, I agree, a completely unnecessary romance in the movie um, I didn't feel like it was overpowering. I actually, I had a different take on Maya in watching the film. I didn't feel like her relationship with Sam was driving her motivations. I, I felt like she she did feel incredibly compelled by the situation that that her and her fellow janitors were in, that she believed in in taking this kind of risk in unionizing and trying to union. And she was the instigator. She was the person who contacted Sam who convinced the other people on the janitorial staff to hear him out, to go to the meeting, to unionize. I don't know that that was entirely because she had feelings for Sam, especially because it really was a very small part of the movie. I felt like, you know, it was just sort of this like random thing happening in the background. But I don't know that it actually motivated her decision. I don't think it was her entire driving force. I just think it undermined her character's driving force. You it know? was and totally it, unnecessary. It made her look silly. Like the moment where they're sort of watching the news coverage of their, um, you know, crashing the Hollywood party of the merger for the lawyers mm -hmm. and she sort of pulls him into another room to make out with him and he's yep. sort of like oh we shouldn't be doing this and kind of pushing her away and it's like what what is happening right now totally <laughs> unnecessary so unnecessary it, and it just, it, yeah, yeah so it, it made just, no sense in the film her character would have been stronger had this shoehorned romance not been there i mean totally what agree. i agree the way that i the way that i see this is that if you take this out of the historical context of this is based on a real event uh the way that I, the part of this that bugs me and the way I see it is that from a purely storytelling point of view, Sam Shapiro's character and Adrian Brody's character serve no purpose in this movie. Mm. He does nothing. And the reason that I think that there's a romance is if there's not a romance, there's no way to make that connection between Rosa and, and Sam. Why would she care? Why would we spend any time with him? He brings nothing to the story, which is a story about, well, this woman, she comes from Mexico. She's an immigrant. She gets a job, but it's a terrible job. And so she starts making efforts to unionize. And here's the circumstances by which people in that situation deal with it. And here's her story. Sam has no character arc. He doesn't learn anything from this. He's not even basically <laughs> in the last scene. The only reason he's there is to provide, a, like Charmy said, a white perspective here. He is there. They have to have somebody connected to a larger union, but that could be five seconds. He, in fact, he has a scene with someone else who's connected to the larger union. You could have uh, Maya 
in that scene in his place with somebody who's a union organizer played by Adrian Brody saying, well, we're going to pull out if you guys don't see any advances. But the only reason to have him in there is to have a white actor to do this. And the only way you can justify why she's connected to this random stranger who doesn't really have anything on the line is like, oh, well, I like him. So I care, you know, what happens to him. But he never had like from a purely story story perspective, he never has any consequences. The no, only consequence to him is that his girlfriend might get in trouble. Because Even if, then, he, he doesn't, doesn't seem really, that upset. No. He doesn't seem to be that into her. Like, um, <laughs> right. No, and it's frustrating because a lot of the times when they're showing him organizing and telling them about the labor movement, there's a Hispanic woman with him sure. who is from another movement that has been successful, and her character could have done all the same guidance Yep, and had an even deeper connection because she has a similar background. You know, right. she could say, she I went through this struggle. This yes. has been successful. And she's sort of relegated to nodding her head in agreement to everything Adrian Brody says. To me, this reads as, well, we're making this movie. It's a low budget movie. We need to get a star mm-hmm. in it. There are no Mexican female stars. So we'll put Adrian Brody in and we're going to write. Selma a... Hayek? There are yes, plenty there of are. Mexican female stars. But, <laughs> there are, but in order to draw a white audience... They need a white yes. leading character. I'm saying that, I guess, I, let me rephrase that. I'm saying this facetiously, yeah. that in terms of why there are sometimes white actors inserted in stories that don't really have a place for them, that is, I think, how he ends up there. And then you have to justify his position in this story. And the justification they've made is, well, she's a woman, so she likes him. They're in a heteronormative romance, and that justifies their, that puts stakes on whatever happens to her happens to him. Even if it doesn't, it didn't even. But they didn't. But even, they don't. They that didn't. They didn't even make that a part of the story. Because if they were going to, they would have to rewrite the story to make that <laughs> justification. And the person writing and making this movie really doesn't care. Like, is not writing a romance. He the the intent of the filmmaker is clearly about this struggle that he cares about, and the justification of Adrian Brody there is like. Well, what's the easiest, least amount of time we can spend on this? Well, they like each other. So now it makes sense. Even if as the watcher, it's like, no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Yeah. But that's how I see it is like, there's they could take Adrian Brody out of this movie, take all of his scenes and put them on uh, Maya. It would be the exact same movie, only better. The only reason to have him in there is to have Adrian Brody in there. That's what I think. <laughs> that, that's, I agree. That's my justification for it. And I like Adrian Brody so as an I. actor. He's yeah. great. Um, He's fine. That, and that isn't to say that there couldn't have been a successful role written for someone who was white in this no. movie. It just wasn't written well. Yeah, not in this movie, right. though. Yeah. Not so. this movie with this writer. Yeah, it felt like it was wedged in, but not even wedged in very hard, just kind of lightly wedged in. And that's yeah. the thing, is it sort of feels like they didn't give any thought to how they interact with people of color in their daily lives. And so they didn't feel like they're like, oh, no, it just makes sense. Like, just put them in there, right? Like, I think and- it's it's this funny thing where on the one hand, I'm like, I don't want Adrian. I don't want more Adrian Brody. But because there's so little, it's like, yeah, we know you don't care. Like, there's no, Mm-mm. it's dumb the way it is. That doesn't mean I want more. <laughs> No. Just take him out. He doesn't need to be there. It doesn't add anything to the movie. It, and there nothing. were scenes, the scene where he's running around the office to, to steal the list was like, it wasn't so even from goofy. that movie. 
Mm-hmm. It, it didn't belong there after the scenes of her being kidnapped yeah, and well, cleverly whole, getting out of her. The tonal beginning was really hard. Like the threat of rape and then her like comedically oh, yeah. stealing the boots. Yeah. It was, I was like, what is this movie like, going to be about? Like, That was very scary. It was really <laughs> creepy. And then no consequence for that at all. Like she just takes a cab to her sister's house and suddenly she has money, by the way, to pay for a cab. I don't know where that happened. Do you think that Adrian Brody was in this movie in a lesser capacity and they added more scenes later? Like I'm thinking about the scene where he comically escapes, they that doesn't bear out in the story in a meaningful way. Do you think they added that later after test audiences or something uh, to be like, oh, we should build up this romance? A meet cute. It is a meet cute. Right, but it doesn't belong. No, it felt very weird. Do you think they inserted it later? They wrote it later as like, well, we want to justify more Adrian Brody because he's gonna. Well, that's the problem. They couldn't think of a way to justify her interest in the movement without making it a love interest. They couldn't think of a creative way to write a character. Just being oppressed isn't good enough. Yeah, no, exactly. No, so they had to sort of amp up the romance, you know? Mm -hmm. And trying to appeal to audiences. I think that's something that filmmakers are always thinking about. How can we bring more people into the theater? How can we make more people watch this movie? Let's add a famous star like adrian brody sure. let's wedge in some kind of a love interest because i don't know why as ladies we love it. it it makes yeah the <laughs> ladies the ladies only care about love interests not about labor rights mm-hmm. not about human dignity gosh <laughs> they only want a love scene <laughs> i've seen salt of the earth i know how yeah, women think <laughs> it's exactly it's just you were very myopic in our view we only care if there's kissing scenes but <laughs> Um, I, I don't know when that scene was added in, but it, it doesn't make sense at all. Uh, the dog got in. <laughs> Guest yeah. star. Just a minute. Well, she has some thoughts about Adrian. Yeah. Brody, I Mimi think. loves here, women's though. rights. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we talk about Salt of the Earth? I wanted to say uh, one weird mm-hmm. uh, impression that I had while I was watching this movie. Sure. So they're having the big party with the two with the two law firms merging, and all these Hollywood all these Hollywood LA people yeah, are showing up. Hollywood elite. And after watching a movie, I mean, most of the people in this movie look fairly ordinary, and they're dressed in ordinary clothes, and they're janitors, and yeah. they're you know, which and I liked of various ages and weights and sizes and shapes and mm-hmm. races, and then seeing these weird blonde, <laughs> tall bunch of Hollywood extras. I was. It made me think of wolfhounds. The, mm. Do you know what a wolfhound looks like? They are very bizarre dogs that are. Uh, they're very thin and tall and like a coyote. Um, no, like a fancy dog that a very rich person would have. Oh. Um, and it was kind. Of, I kind of felt like all of a sudden it, it was very jarring to see them. It was a little weird. I mean, this movie. I mean, to this movie's credit, uh, it is full of people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, actors and actors in a way that you don't see. Well, and what was really interesting is when they showed the scene of the dance party, the racial diversity among the people involved in the union mm-hmm. was really interesting. There were Hispanic folks, there were black folks, there were white mm-hmm. folks, um, and labor unions, unfortunately, don't don't really look like that. There, There is a lot of stratification. There's mm-hmm. a long history of stratification and discrimination in labor movements. It's not this picture-perfect utopia where everyone is treated equally, as we'll talk about and we saw in Salt of the Earth. <laughs> right. Women are not treated the same. Minorities are not treated the same. If you are documented or undocumented, you are mm-hmm. not always treated the same. It was interesting in this movie in particular 
they did some things really well mm-hmm. about showing how why unions are so important because corporations because businesses take advantage of people who are the most vulnerable who are the most marginalized who have the least agency who have the least political power and use fear and coercion to to deter them from collective action and from unionizing they they showed that in this movie i think very effectively but in some ways they also sort of romanticized unions they romanticize this racial utopia and gender <laughs> utopia of men and women you know being treated equally within within the labor movement yeah which is just unfortunately at least in my understanding of unions and the the folks i've talked to who are part of labor movements now is just not the case um in some places i'm sure that they have done a much better job mm-hmm. and and do sort of think about intersectionality and think about equality within the union, not just equality to demand equal rights and fair pay and all of that. But what is, how can you demand equality if you don't exercise that same equality within the union itself? Mm-hmm. And I think it brought up some really interesting questions around that, at least for me. One of the things I did appreciate about the movie was how much of it was in Spanish. Yeah. Um, how much of their conversation when they were talking to each other was in Spanish with subtitles for us to read. Um, and I think thought it helped it feel more authentic you know it wasn't just a Mm -hmm. bunch of native spanish speakers speaking english for no reason to each other to sort of make it easier for us to follow along and i don't know i thought there there were a lot of good things about the movie especially compared to (laughs) some of the films we've watched um it was far from perfect but it was i think one of the better ones we've watched yeah i tried to look up what the budget was for this movie which i couldn't find but i was like the, from the first scene, I'm like, oh, this is going to be low budget. Mm-hmm. And I had very low expectations. And I was like, no, this is, they have some really good actors in here and it's well written. Uh, it looks cheap, but I was, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Which is it was a, a good movie. It was very thought provoking. I believe it was nominated for the Palm Door mm-hmm. the year that it was released. The DVD copy you sent us does have two little, little symbols things on it. with yeah. some. Olive brands. I will also say when I got the, the the DVD copy and I looked on the back, I was like, oh, this is from a time where on the back of a DVD box, you'd use the term illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, would they have, would they use that now? Because I know it is not in common parlance, but Plenty it's still used. Plenty of people used. use that term. It Maybe yes. not in quote unquote liberal Seattle. Where we, we prefer to humanize people, but um, and plenty of other places around the company or the country, and that's a huge topic of conversation right now. Yeah, right with this wall that uh, our administration is trying to build, calling people illegal aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are not illegal aliens. They are humans who happen not to have the same paperwork as you. And yeah. it does not yeah, give you Yeah, but that doesn't license. sound as scary. And... I know. Yeah, I really got to amp up the fear <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah, I would like I to otherwise them. Fear mongering. Have a reason to not like the brown people. Because I know at least a few years ago, the news organizations in general agreed, we're not going to use this term anymore. And I was like, okay, well, it must have been between the back of this box and now, <laughs> or maybe not. But that's but 2000 that's was almost 20 years, years ago. Yeah. 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 It's, it's crazy how time. dated this movie is. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. Well, it was pre-9-11. That yeah. completely uh. changed the conversation around immigration mm-hmm. in a lot of really profound ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, we have to look at it through that lens, too. It was, it was literally a different world. Yeah, it really was. Well, and I'm also like, I wonder what the minimum wage in L.A. is right now, <laughs> trying to figure that out. 
compared to here, compared to there. Mm-hmm. It's mean, probably not much improved. No. No. And the cost of living cost has of living. definitely <laughs> gone up. Yeah, a jillion times more, but. Salt, All right. Salt of the earth? Salt, salt of, of the, the earth. earth. I'm not going to synopsize this one. Uh, I've done my synopsis. I can try. Sure. All right. Well, well so there yeah. is a. Um, uh, this movie takes place in New Mexico in Zinktown. Uh, there are some miners. You see some scenes at the beginning of a family, um, uh, Esperanza and her husband. Ramon. Ramon. <laughs> that is like the one character whose name I can remember. Um, Esperanza seems a little downtrodden. Uh, she has three. Ch- oh, she's pregnant at the time. At the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie, she's pregnant. She's seven months pregnant. Her husband works in the mine. The mine conditions are not great. The Anglos, as they call them, have running water, hot water, indoor plumbing. Mm-hmm. The um, Mexican-Americans who live in company houses do not have any of those things. Um, and I don't remember I don't remember at what point they start talking about going on strike. There's an accident. Uh, yes. They're already unionized, which yeah. I think is an important yeah. difference between Bread and Roses and this movement or yeah. this movie is in Bread and Roses. They the janitorial staff was not yet unionized. So it showed the process of forming a union, joining a union, mm-hmm. whereas in Bre- uh, Salt of the Earth, they were already unionized because Barnes, the character Barnes, was right. their union rep. Yeah, they were upset because um, they had cut down on having a buddy system. In the mines, which made For it more the Mexican Americans right. only, which made it right. more difficult right. and dangerous. So, mm-hmm. so the Anglo's, uh, they had a buddy system. So if so, one person could look out and for danger. The Mexican Americans, in order to cut costs, I assume they did not have a buddy system, so they were in more danger uh, when they were down in the mines. But the the person who gets injured that sort of instigates the uh, them going on strike or or sets up that whole scene where they decide to go on strike yeah is actually one of the white mm-hmm. ang- one of the anglos as, yeah. as they refer to them um and i can't remember his name uh he's injured in a, some kind of mine accident and then they start arguing with the white uh mine foreman. yeah the foreman yeah. about the fact that they don't have a buddy system and they don't have you know they're not treated the same it's dangerous it's kind of a standoff and the women are all up on the hill above them, and I don't remember why. That oh. was later, I believe. Well, this is this is after the second accident when yeah. they come. All the women come running because oh, they the hear the siren for the accident. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're sort of watching. And one of them happens to be holding a sign: uh, <laughs> "We want sanitation, not discrimination." Because in the meanwhile, the women have been trying to argue. They have been in uh, talks. They're trying to negotiate with the company mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. better uh, conditions, <laughs> more yes. money, possibly some sort of health coverage of some kind they, and yeah. they want it to be safer yeah they and want the, that buddy system the I buddy assume. system and the women in the meanwhile have been trying to get their husbands to also argue for hot water that they should have the same plumbing as the anglos yes specifically they're saying we want equality we're both we're all miners right. here we should have the same equality and their husbands are saying fine by me i don't <laughs> have to wash any clothes well the male the the miners are the mexican-american miners are saying to their wives we need to get equality with the Anglo miners first, and then we'll worry about whether we have hot running water. Yes, equality in pay before right. equality in homes. In everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's this standoff when this one miner gets injured, 
and then they decide to strike and they strike yes <laughs> I, I don't know if i can synopsize this movie or not they're uh they're striking i know that at one Charlie's point ready. <laughs> okay. tap me in one two yeah. ready go um so the the rest of the movie basically chronicles this 15 month long strike yes. and a few pivotal points in the movie come particularly between the character of um Ramon and Esperanza. Mm -hmm. So Ramon has sort of taken on this leadership role within the union for this particular town, Zinc Town, and is seen as a leader in this particular labor movement. And Esperanza, who, again, at the beginning of the movie, is seven months pregnant, ends up giving birth, we see during the course of the film, with three, she then has three children. So there's some tension between Ramon and Esperanza, Originally, Esperanza does not want Ramon and the other workers to go on strike. She doesn't want any part of what they're trying to do. She's afraid that Ramon will lose his job. They'll be in even more of a desperate situation. But Ramon convinces her that it's necessary for them to go on strike and to demand, you know, equal safety conditions, equal pay as these Anglo workers, etc. So there's this ongoing tension between these two characters throughout the movie but what happens after they initially go on strike is that the male mine workers form a picket line mm-hmm. and try to drive away scabs or non-union workers who are trying to break the strike and come and work in the mine despite the fact that the workers who are already employed there are on strike and demanding better conditions. Sure. And there's a consistent police presence throughout the film. So the sheriff in the town and his officers come and basically harass the the men on the picket line and try to intimidate them make fun of them ridicule them yell racial slurs at them to try to break this picket line over the course of months and throughout the parallel to this throughout that time the women the wives of these mine workers start to participate more and more in the strike so they start slow by bringing coffee to to their husbands, bringing them lunch, etc. And at a certain point, some of the women decide, hey, we want to be a part of this union. We want to form a women's auxiliary unit to right. this union. We want to be a part of this union because we have a stake in this in well, as well. And they're heavily involved in it up to this point. They just don't have a voice. Exactly. And one of the women who was a widow came to the picket line and eventually starts marching with the men. And that's what really starts more oh, of the women. Right. Her husband was killed in a mine accident. Mm-hmm. And in- initially, she just stands at the outskirts Knitting. crocheting. <laughs> and yeah. then she starts marching with them. She's the first woman that marches with them. Yeah. yeah. So um, as the film goes on, we see the women become more and more involved. They end up getting this women's auxiliary uh, unit to the union. They set up a, a physical presence at the picket line and we see over the course of months that they're picketing women getting increasingly involved in the union efforts and eventually it comes to this boiling point where the men in the union are served some kind of a court order saying hey it's illegal now it's illegal for you to picket they use the the taft hartley act (laughs) taft hartley act which was which was a real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is based on a real event, so. There are many, many <laughs> anti-union, union-busting laws on the books to try to break up union organizing, and the Taft-Hartley Act is one of them. And so they employed this 
very effectively and basically said, hey, if you men, actual workers of this mine, continue to picket, you'll be arrested. Yeah. And so the the women who are part of this auxiliary group say, we actually, we have a solution. It is not as dire as you lose if you continue to picket, you lose if you don't. What if you don't picket men? What if we picket the women instead, your wives? We go out and we continue this fight. Rabble, 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 rabble. <laughs> yes, <laughs> lots of rabble rousing. Um, and of course, the men in the group are, you know, sort of making fun of the women for speaking up and saying that's a crazy idea. We can't put them in danger. Legitimate point. Um, and if they get in danger, we'll have to beat everybody up and then we'll get arrested. So what's <laughs> Exactly. The point? Catch 22. So... Um, Women at this point have sort of joined the union in the sense that they are a presence and they have an mm. auxiliary union, but they are not members. part of the union. They're not members of the union. So right. they pause their union membership meeting and they restart a community meeting <laughs> sure. and are then allowed to have women be included in the vote. And they take a vote whether or not they will, you know, accept this idea that women will continue the picket. And I believe it was 103 to 85. That's what I was Yeah. Saying. Yeah. Close because the women were able to vote, right? (laughs) Crazy things happen when women can vote. (laughs) Um, and so the the measure passes, and women take up the picket line. And this is seven months into their, yeah, about halfway through the strike. I think it's important to note, um, Barnes, the union organizer, as he's talking to Ramon about, um, you know, the, the negotiations that are happening with the mining company. One of the reasons that they're not making any progress before the strike, and actually even during the strike, um, mm-hmm. is that one of the things that the mining company uses to keep other unions down is telling them, hey, at least you're making more than the Mexican miners. Right. And so the more oppressed the Mexican miners are, the lower the wages are for the Anglo miners. <laughs> yes. And Ramon, you know quite aptly notes you know that our oppression is bad for white people as well in fact he says discriminate discrimination hurts the anglos too but it hurts me more right right and so yeah it's just really important that this is the motivation that the mind has (laughs) is they don't want to compromise at all because then they might have to renegotiate and pay everyone even more which reminds me this from the episode uh, all the king's men episode Mm -hmm. uh the essay by uh Mr. Penn, whose first name I can't remember yeah, now, of I course. you talking about him, but I can't remember his name either. He basically had written an essay saying the white Southerner needs to make sure that the black Southerner is on equal footing. Otherwise, he will be, he, you know, he... Otherwise, we'll be in competition. He, right. He'll be in competition with people who are being paid less, and he also will make less. Yeah. I know it's bad for them, but how is it bad for me? <laughs> <laughs> the pyramid of oppression has been used throughout history. But it's just, it's so smart that this was something that was recognized. Divide and conquer, (laughs) my friends. Age old tactic. Um, But in any case, back to the (laughs) storyline. So through the course of the picketing, um, eventually Ramon gets arrested, wrongfully arrested. He um, is chasing a scab who is another Mexican-American worker who has crossed the picket line out of desperation. He desperately needs a job. Ramon literally chases him down and doesn't hurt him. Yeah, sees who it is, sees that it's someone that he knows that he thought he trusted. It's a fellow Mexican-American also Mm -hmm. working in a mine. And the guy tells him, hey, I'm desperate. I've got kids to feed. I, I need to put food on the table. And Ramon says, hey, you know, you don't think my kids are hungry? 
don't mm-hmm. think I also need to, to put food on the table. I can't believe you'd do this, but I'm not going to beat you up. However, there are cops chasing him. And of course, no other witnesses, quote unquote, and they accuse Ramon of beating up this person and resisting arrest and they incarcerate him. And mm-hmm. they beat him up. And yeah. they beat the crap out of him while his wife is in labor. His <laughs> wife is literally going into labor as he is chasing down a scab, getting arrested, taken into a cop car and gets the shit beat out of him by these two white cops. And he's in the hospital for like a month. He's in yeah. the hospital for a month. He's in, in jail for another 30 days and um, comes back and finds Esperanza. And she, in the meantime, It's has, her birthday, right? That is the... He comes that back That is at the very beginning. Birth. I thought he came No, back. that was the saint's day at the very beginning. It wasn't her birthday. It was her saint's day. So but the she, saint that she's I mean, named after. That's she, her birthday. Was it her birthday? That's yes. her saint's Same day. Yeah. Same as birthday. I thought it was... Because saint's day in medieval times was like you're the the saint that people were often named after the saint's birthday was also a day of celebration interesting uh, well but they sing I, they sing the birthday song they they're, do they're, sing a birthday song yeah it, it very well it, i yeah but this is saint's no day. but they were celebrating this was after oh, oh, sorry no. sorry about that they were celebrating two things his return and another thing what yes. was the other thing it's not the well, christening Yes. Oh, okay. they got right. their child baptized the ramon gets beaten up and arrested before her baby is before their baby is born at the same time that her baby but at is the same time, she's but in this labor. is before the women's auxiliary is yeah formed. It's a little she has the baby the with her during the vote she has the baby with her yeah. and is like oh great now we're picketing you can hold the baby ramon oh this is so hard i thought that <laughs> no, the, no 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 she's right no, the so women's auxiliary the had formed before she had the baby. That's why the baby's on the picket it's line. It's just with that her. Esperanza had not decided whether or not she would join the women's mm. auxiliary. She was still on the fence about it because Ramon was opposed to it. Well, I mean, to his credit, I think he was afraid that she would get hurt, and also, I'm not giving Ramon any didn't credit. <laughs> didn't didn't want to. I don't know, but in any case, um, she has the baby. Ramon returns from prison. Um, and then the next milestone in the film is that as the women after this point take over the picket line, um, they continue to face the same kind of tactics by the police, by the mm-hmm. the mining bosses who come in and try to, um, you know, scare them away. They're violent against them. They ran run into a woman on the picket line with their car. Yeah. They shoot at them. They they put you know, use tear gas against them. They're using all kinds of really horrendous tactics to try to break this picket line by the women. Meanwhile, the men are on the sidelines, literally just sitting around watching Mm. the women because they are legally prohibited from picketing. Yeah. But Ramon in particular is opposed to this and refuses to take care of their children while his wife is picketing for him and for their family. And so there's this very interesting character arc we see with Ramon having to take on some of the domestic obligations and mm. chores that Esperanza has had for years and years and years. And as he is very reticent to take those on and is very resentful of Esperanza for not being able to somehow do everything. Well, yeah. The yeah. other reason he has to do it is because at this time they bring in that same scab and he sort of calls out the more prominent members of the women's auxiliary movement and they arrest all of them yeah. and throw them, I mean, a lot of them. <laughs> all of the women on the picket line. And the babies and, and, and the children. children. They take yeah. their kids and their babies and drive the folks in the jail crazy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and in the meantime, that we don't actually know how long Esperanza and those other women from the picket line are in jail. But in the right. meantime, Ramon is taking on all of the domestic chores mm-hmm. that Esperanza was doing previously and hates it. Hates doing the laundry, hates taking care of the baby, hates, you know, trying to manage a household all of that. And there's this very interesting interchange between he and I think one of his neighbors mm-hmm. while they're yeah. hanging up laundry and minding their children. Right. And they're talking about equality. Yeah. <laughs> specifically women's equality and how important it is that if they're going to ask for equality, shocker, they have to treat other people with equality, including the women in their lives. And Ramon's like, bonkers. We need to have hot water and. Right. Ramon finally gets it. Oh, that's why you were for. asking for for sanitation, mm-hmm. not discrimination. That's why all these these wives and women were were asking for equal plumbing as their Anglo mining neighbors. And the women are saintly levels of patient with their husbands through these movies, and incredibly effective organizers. And, but they, you oh, know, yeah. they just sort of joke like they get it. They're like the men just don't have the experience. They don't understand, you know, what we do. They sort of they're like, you know, my husband thinks I just read the funny pages all day and doesn't understand <laughs> how much actual labor goes into right. But being be- a housewife. Before that, she describes exactly what they have to do, which is they have to chop wood in order five to times make, a day. Right. They <laughs> chop wood to make breakfast. They chop wood to do the laundry. They chop wood to to you know yeah mm-hmm. etc cetera, etc cetera. anytime they need hot water right they have to chop a new bundle of wood right yeah and so eventually esperanza and the rest of the women are released from jail they come back home she gets a very cold welcome home from ramon he's grumpy he's very <laughs> grumpy um it's not his movement anymore he goes he's to no hall or whatever yes he say. leaves for the beer hall comes home past midnight after telling her that he wanted to talk to her and Esperanza gives this incredible speech, a very compelling monologue, basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm fighting for our family. I'm, I'm trying to do everything that I can to, to make a better situation for us. And, and we're going to win. And we're going to win. We're going to yeah. win. But you, you can't, you know, you, you feel like you're under the boot of these Anglos that you're feeling like you're being treated as lesser than. And then you come home and you treat me. Is lesser than and like what the fuck, bro? Well, no, she tells me. She says, "Does that make you feel better to have someone beneath you as well?" Yeah, think about it, man. Yeah, and it comes back to this this theory of the the pyramid of oppression, mm-hmm. basically saying it's the same thing we were talking about before. Is that the only way that people at the very top can keep power is by stratifying everyone else, is by making us think that. We're actually, we're not equal to people who are in the same situation as us because there's always someone who has it worse off. If it's not, you know, people who are poor, it's people who are brown. If it's not people who are brown, it's women who are brown. And so it's just this stratification and people using that against each other to say, hey, you know, at least we don't have it as bad as the Mexicans. And the Mexican men saying, hey, at least we don't have it as bad as the women in our lives. And and the opposite flow, the idea that if they're asking for their rights, it undermines your ability to ask for your rights, that we have to sort of pick and choose who gets more equality versus if everybody gets what they're asking for, it lifts all boats. And that's what Esperanza ends up saying. And so Ramon perfect timing decides that's a perfect time to go on a hunting trip mm-hmm. <laughs> with a bunch of other I'm a bunch hungry. of other people well, they, they feel like they're not they're useful good. at all yeah. for the movement anymore so they're sort yeah, of there's, pouting. there's quite a bit of emasculation happening which is driving some of the the bad 
behavior towards the women who are out on the picket line fighting for the rights that theoretically, you know, they're they're all interested in achieving. Mm-hmm. And so Ramon and some other men go on a hunting trip and Ramon is thinking about his conversation with Esperanza and Esperanza had said, hey, you know, I think we're really close to winning. We just got released from jail. We drove the sheriff crazy. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for over a year at this point. There is going to be a tipping point. They're just waiting for the right moment. It's like the calm before a storm. And one of the things that triggers Ramon as he's thinking about this is while Esperanza was in jail and he had gone to pick up their children, you know, who were trapped from the jail cell, um, he was eavesdropping on the mine workers and the sheriff talking with the district attorney about their tactics and, you know, how they were sort of at their wits end and how much more could they do and sort of how desperate they were getting to make any progress with this. Right. Yeah. And so um, the the climax of the film comes shortly after this because as Ramon is rushing home from his hunting trip, um, he, he realizes like, Oh, there, this is something, something right is going to happen. Yeah. Something's going to happen. And so he comes back to find the company bosses um, evicting just his family. They have singled mm-hmm. out his family, his home, which is on company property provided by the mining company. For eviction, right. which had previously been a tactic that the mining company said, no, we're not going to go there yet. Let's right. let's ride desperate. this out. It's too desperate <laughs> because where are we going to throw these people out? There is nowhere for them to go. Oh, I think we forgot to mention that the only reason that they had been able to survive for these 15 months is that unions across the country had heard this story and members had been sending in their sort of spare change, a dollar mm-hmm. here, a dollar there, IWW a fund to help them live. Yeah, the union that they were a part of for the mine and the union representative, Barnes, who was their union rep, uh, was their, all that whole union was part of International Workers of the World, which is an international organization of unions. And so they were the, the folks at the mine were getting support from IWW and from other union operations around that area and around the country who were sending in support so that they could continue to strike and to picket because obviously in that time they're making no money and there's there are already people who have probably very little savings if any at all who are living hand to mouth because of their incredibly low wages and so that was what sustained them but in any case um ramon returns from his hunting trip to find that his house is being evicted and as their house is being basically barged into by union representatives and people from the sheriff's office Mm -hmm. taking their stuff out, just throwing it on the ground. Um, People from the town come and and join with them. People from neighboring towns come and join Mm -hmm. with them. It's, it's a massive collection of people. Their kids are throwing (laughs) rocks at the cops. And, you know, as the cops turn their back, people, um, outside of the house, just start taking the stuff from the front yard and putting it back inside the house. And, there's such a critical mass of people outside of the home in solidarity and support for Esperanza and Ramon and their family that eventually um, they just the the union bosses or not the union, the mining bosses and the sheriff's office just give up. And yeah. I mean, it, they win the they strike. both physically and, you know, metaphorically see how much support they have and that. You know, if all the other mines are now physically joining in to stop this eviction, they're probably also backing them, 
you know, and right. this could spread to other minds now if they continue mm-hmm. with this action. Yeah, and eviction was sort of their their last leverage. tactic, their mm-hmm. last bit of leverage, kicking people out of their homes. Mm-hmm. The optics on that are terrible. It looks awful to send, you know, a family and their small kids out of the only home that they have that they know. Right. Because you're not paying them enough <laughs> money or, or providing safe working conditions. So basically, the movie ends shortly thereafter. And after 15 months of struggle, these miners and their families have won the strike. Yay. Just Yay. like in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that did happen in real life, actually. Yeah, it is based on a true story. Uh, yeah. And real people. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the movie, many of the actors in the movie are the miners from the strike that this movie is based on. Mm. It was the Empire Zinc Company that they were striking against. I think they call it the Delaware Zinc Company mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and it did take place in New Mexico. Uh, this movie has a lot of stuff going on with <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs> so um, it was directed by Herbert Biberman or Biberman possibly <laughs> is, uh, and uh, produced by Paul Jericho and written by Michael Wilson. They were three of the Hollywood 10. They were all three blacklisted. Oh yeah. Cause this movie says this is the, this is the band movie. Yeah. This Don't movie this is movie. the only movie that was blacklisted yeah. because, and the, the reason for that is nobody made movies to get black, you know, <laughs> right? the movies that they made after they, the McCarthy era started, didn't get blacklisted because they were all influenced by the McCarthy they era. Yeah. They were scared. And all the people that they had fired and couldn't work anymore. Uh, like these three guys, um, mm-hmm. One of the other, one of the, there's like a few professional actors in this movie. The two that I know anything about are uh, Rosaro, Rosara Resvelta, who played mm-hmm. the main character Esperanza. And then the guy who played the sheriff is an, is an actor named Will Greer, mm-hmm. who played Grandpa Walton in the TV show The Waltons, which you may or may not be familiar with. Shaking my head. I mean, I've heard old, that. Old people are yeah. familiar with it. <laughs> He was old grand, folks he was right grand on in. He was blacklisted, so for a long period of time, he didn't work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a hobby of growing Shakespearean gardens. So basically, what? he grew he grew the plants that were mentioned in Shakespeare plays. <laughs> what? That's a thing. <laughs> no, sure, it was for him. I guess. <laughs> what is what is an example of I, a plant? I cannot give you an example of a plant from Shakespeare. I have newt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so he didn't work for a period of time. Also, um, the director, Herbert Bieberman, originally they had cast his wife, who also was blacklisted and who had a career, and then her career ended because of uh, McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Um, she yeah. was cast as Esperanza. And then they all looked at them, they looked at each other and said, well, we're just doing what, we're just whitewashing the way that Hollywood <laughs> yeah. does. I don't want us to do this. Do that. Let's get a Spanish-speaking actress to actually play this character. And so they hired Rosara Resvelda, Resvelta, who is actually from Mexico. I think she was. She was. She didn't mm-hmm. make that many movies, but she made a few movies in Mexico. She was a professional actress. She's so good. They hired her. They were all good. The yeah. movie was the non-professional actors were really. Good. Really progressive for being made in nineteen very progressive. More progressive than the two thousand movie was we watched. It was way more progressive. I think than it's that. the most progressive movie we've watched for oh, yeah. any oh, decade. A hundred percent. It is very much worth watching, and it's interesting you brought this up, Deb. That this movie was made during the era of McCarthyism, and there was a correlation. There was sort of framing 
unions as communist Mm -hmm. because god forbid people ask for equality (laughs) anything having to do with equality is clearly communism that's bad yeah in fact the union that the miners actually belonged to in real life was uh it was i don't know what the right word is but they were not they were like pushed out of the main union uh with uh, accusations of being a communist (gasps) organization Bum, bum, bum. No. Stupid McCarthy. Joseph <laughs> McCarthy. Yeah. Continuing his reign of terror over the movies we're watching. <laughs> Is he going to be around for the next one? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say. We're about... It's the 60s. It's not that far off. Yeah, yeah. We're almost out from under McCarthyism. Almost out of the blacklist. I don't know if we're still out of McCarthyism, you guys. <laughs> well, well, no. Too real. Here. Too <laughs> real, Nicole. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that is for real because a lot of the things... Yeah, uh, the shadow that's hanging over us right now is very similar in feel Mm -hmm. to McCarthyism. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know that much about McCarthyism. I didn't realize quite how powerful it was and how much it affected uh, culture. Everything. Everything. People's lives, Mm -hmm. their job prospects, their ability to be safe in their homes. But not just that. It's like they influenced everything that people saw. Mm-hmm. So it didn't just it didn't just destroy people's lives. It meant that people who sat around watching TV were only watching what was Sanitized. acceptable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that explains a lot of things about 50s television, like yeah. Lost in Space, where there's this little white family going around and they're, you know, the feel of it is. Oh, very... I think there's a new Lost in Space. <laughs> there is. <laughs> there is. It's not the same. Yeah. Um, they're just but... mostly white family now. <laughs> Well, they are definitely what. Well, <laughs> they are a white family. Hey, there's yeah. a robot. Yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a black girl now. Yeah, they have one. They have one of their children is black, and they don't talk about that, which yeah. is a little weird. There's one conversation, uh, the Don West character, who is the, who in the yeah. original Lost in Space is the extra guy, so that you oh. can have sort of a love interest <laughs> with one of the you. with one of the children, yeah. um, the extra guy. Uh, she, uh, I think it's Judy is the uh, African-American. She yeah. says, well, I'm one of the Robinsons. And he looks at her askance and she says, my, my dad, he, my current dad is not the original dad that I had, basically. Right. But that's all they say about it. It's yeah. really a little bit weird. Tokenism. Yeah. The way they handle that is bizarre. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can feel it in the mo- the show. Of you know, like, talking well, about race is way too scary, guys. We can't have Let's a show. Let's not go into conversations about non-white identities. Yeah, we can't have a show with a white family that's all white. So we'll have a black woman there. Because we're but diverse. also, we're, representative. Like, we're not going to deal with the fact that like, well, that would drastically We're not going to talk about her race. Family. We're just going to ignore it because it's too uncomfortable to yeah, talk about. Basically. Um, <laughs> McCarthyism. Well, McCarthyism. I was going to say. What did you guys think of the movie? We talked about it. It was fantastic. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, It's free on Amazon Prime, by the way. Yeah, go go watch watch it. 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 It's so good. One of the ways that it's progressive is the strongest character. Although, I mean, she's not strong at the beginning, but she she goes from being... She has an arc. Esperanza goes from being downtrodden to being joyful about the fact that she has... Purpose. (laughs) Purpose and she... Power. Yeah. And it's always... (laughs) Jinx. She takes, I mean, the her relationship with Ramon is well-developed and well-written where it starts out, she's very weak and scared and he is the boss. And by the end, she's like, I'm doing this for us and you need to learn to deal with it. And he does. Like, yeah. he comes around on it by and the it end. And it feels 
honest in terms of i mean even from the very beginning the marital problems they're having you know like she has a radio that they have on layaway and they're sort of behind on the payments Mm -hmm. and he's like you know it's stupid that we're paying for this but you just had to have it and she's like you know passive aggressively she's like well you seem to have money for beer after work (laughs) (laughs) you know i just want a radio to listen to all day so one of the interesting things about this script is that um michael michael wilson i don't I think he was may have been the person that discovered this story and said this is the story that we need to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had he had written an original script. He he went down there. He talked to the miners. Mm-hmm. He came back and he said to his partners, basically, "We're not going to do anything that the miners don't want us to do. They have a voice in this script. So basically, if they don't agree with something, I'm going to rewrite it." to something Hmm. that they agree with. And some of the things that, I I hope I can remember these, one of the things that they did not like was, I can't remember what the one, one, there was one thing that they objected to that he, that he removed. And then there was another one where they were, the guys were drinking or something and the guys and the, oh, I can't remember what it is. (laughs) Oh no. Basically they, they said, well, our men aren't, our men aren't, uh, Drunks. Drunks. And so you can't have this scene. And so they changed it. Hmm. They said, okay, we're not going to show that. Then they wanted to make sure that they didn't show the typical stereotypes of uh, Mexican-Americans at the time. Right. They wanted to be really careful not to, you know, have them be too macho or too, you know, aggressive sexually or whatever the thing was at the time that was being portrayed in your typical Hollywood movie. They wanted it to be, these are real people with real, you know, Depth and flaws. nuance, yeah, and, flaws yeah. and context and flaws right. that are not stereotyped flaws. So that was one of the things. One of the other things was that the three guys agreed that we all have to agree on things. We are if if we're having a disagreement, then it's going to be a majority sort of. Hmm. We're going to go with whatever the majority says. And there were things that the director was overruled on. He couldn't do things the way that he wanted to every time because they had agreed to this cooperation between themselves. Um, so, it, and some of this information that I have, it's coming from a book that was written by Herbert Bieberman about this mm-hmm. uh, experience. And he starts the book uh, when he's in jail and what it was like to be in jail and how that felt and how it was, you know, the kind of conversations that he had. And then when he got out, how oppressed he felt. And then he decided, I want to work, so I'm going to make a movie. And how long it took for him to get to a point where he felt like, he no longer felt the uh, trauma of having been jailed for, you know, basically just standing up for being an American, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. Um, some of the other things, Esperanza, by the way, Rosara Resuelta was deported during oh. the making of the movie. Oh, geez. So oh, wow. there were scenes they had to film with a body double, and I didn't notice Uh-oh. any of no, them. No, it's not a... Uh... Paul Walker situation. I didn't recognize it. No, they did a really good job. Also, you know, when it got towards the end of making the film, they had like a week to go of shooting scenes and that was, you know, pressing it. Uh, All hell broke loose in the town. Someone had written a letter to, I can't remember who, Walter Pigeon, I believe, who may have been the head of, he was the head of some Hollywood organization. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, basically saying, these people are making this movie in my town. Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting these communists make this movie here? That got, there was a senator who made a speech 
uh, to Congress basically saying this movie shouldn't be allowed to be made. There were ma- and he told a bunch of lies about what was in the movie and what it was sure. about and how scary it was to have all these communists so close to a nuclear uh, it was in New Mexico so there's there's a nuclear yeah, there's, test site there's there? a nuclear facility there that's what yeah. area 51 is so you don't want New communists Mexico, right? near your nuclear facility basically um, that got played on the radio a whole bunch that Whoa. the guy's speech uh, vigilantes came to the town yeah. uh, oh, people yeah. were at somebody's car got shot up the vigilantes tried to destroy their set um, one of their cameras was damaged basically mm. the state the state uh, police had to come and protect them for the last week or so. And then uh, before they left, basically they said, things are going to get worse after we leave, so please stay here and protect the people, protect the miners, basically. Oh, yeah. So they left. Uh, the, the union hall was burned down. Uh, yeah, it was not great. That doesn't sound great. Esperanza was, ba- or not Esperanza, but Rosara was deported because when she came across the border the border patrol just sort of waved her through they didn't stamp her passport mm-hmm. so she had all her papers oh uh, but it she didn't have a stamp and they used mm-hmm. that as as, as a, no. a means to get her out yeah. mm-hmm. well. <laughs> it's like meta yeah it's meta for yeah. the, the immigration of the the film itself yeah do you guys want to briefly talk about i mean it's what april 21st what's going on union and labor movement wise in the u.s right now there's been a series of teacher strikes some ongoing the one in arizona is currently ongoing yeah there's one in arizona so um i guess about two months back teachers in west virginia started a strike they're one of the lowest paid states or teachers in that state i should say are, are some of the lowest paid in the nation and so they went on strike and what was really spectacular about that effort was that it operated both with and without the union yeah wildcat strike the teachers union is is one of the most uh sustaining and powerful unions that still exists in the united states union membership um new unions forming just union power in general general Mm -hmm. has been decreasing significantly in the last several decades um i think the peak of the the labor movement and the union union power in the United States was actually around the time this film was made actually um, in the 1950s and 60s and it started to taper off after that so the fact that these teachers in West Virginia were able to organize it started within the teachers union there but quickly spread outside of it and it was there's some debate about whether or not to call it a wildcat strike and it's very interesting reading if you're interested in labor movements to sort of go into the nuances of what constitutes a wildcat strike but what is a wildcat strike? A wildcat strike is outside of the union, basically operating yeah. outside of the union. But it is um, a union working outside of its agreed union. Uh, yeah, well, basically. non-union members striking. So basically um, a strike that operates that is not closely tied to union leadership, union decision making. Mm. Again, it's really worth reading more into the nuances of the labor movement and what constitutes a wildcat strike. Again, there's some debate about whether or not the, the strike in West Virginia constitutes a wildcat strike. But in any case, the reason that it was so effective is because of social media. 
-hmm. the teachers, um, both unionized and non-unionized, were not satisfied with the pace of the union. The union was ready to settle with the state much, much sooner than the teachers who were involved in the strike. We're seeing that in Arizona right now, too. Yes, we are seeing that in Arizona. Um, And so what ended up happening is that teachers went on strike for weeks. Um, Union and non-union teachers operating sort of with and without the union and were eventually able to secure the raise that they asked for. Um, The governor of West Virginia ended up finally ceding and, you know, trying to make himself out as the good guy and saying, we value education and teachers and we're going to pay you what you deserve. But only after you guys have been on strike for weeks and weeks and weeks and we can't convince you to take less than you are asking for. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think West Virginia was a state. This was surprising to me where they have four-day school weeks. Because they're so Oklahoma. Okay. That's actually Oklahoma. Because they're so underfunded. Yeah. West Virginia, I I don't think that they have four-day school days, but Oklahoma does. And Oklahoma quickly followed. um, Oklahoma and Kentucky quickly followed the strikes in West Virginia. Um, And now we're also seeing similar action being taken in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so this has spread across the country all of those states by the way have are in the lowest bracket the top 10 or the the bottom 10 bottom 10 (laughs) thank you the bottom 10 in terms of of teacher pay yeah um and just the stories coming out of oklahoma um in particular which is the conditions that people are working in there how much money teachers have to pour into providing basic basic things Mm -hmm. for their students that they're taking out of their own pocket when they are so severely underpaid to begin with bread but <laughs> yeah. not roses bread right. but not roses not even bread not even bread they don't <laughs> even have bread. pencils yeah there's not even tissues in classrooms or working chairs yeah um it's really horrendous conditions and they have in oklahoma gone down to a four-day school week mm-hmm. which is that's insane it's, that it's is crazy. truly insane um and so it we're seeing sort of what i hope will become a renaissance of organized action organized Uh, collective bargaining, collective action on the part of teachers. And what's really interesting, and we see this in both of the films that we watched, is the folks who are the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, who make the least amount of money, who have the least political agency, and who are doing some of the hardest work that no one wants to do, and especially no one wants to pay for, they get pushed to the breaking point. And eventually their only option is collective action and collective bargaining. The only power they have is when they come together and they demand what they deserve. And we've seen that happen in these four states. We'll probably see it in many more because... Because they're successful for nothing Because they're successful um, and because social media has allowed for organizing at a scale and a pace that we haven't seen in quite some time. I'm curious if any of you have been part of a union. I have not. No, um, I have not. My my mom is part of a teachers union, though. She's a she works in the Lake Washington School District. Okay. Yeah, my dad was part of the Boeing Engineering Union for you know gotcha. since I was born. <laughs> so I grew up in a union family. Um, I remember my first real job after high school was at Target, and one of the first things they do during orientation is play a little video about Don't how be how Target is not unionized, and yeah. it's. Very reminiscent of what we watched in um, Bread and Roses, the sort of this is why unions are bad and, you know, it's just better for everyone if we don't make a fuss and, you know, be thankful for your job. Was it a presentation? Uh, Well, it was part of orientation. I seem to recall my friend Louise telling me, and she's a project, she was a 
project manager at a very large tech company that I also worked for and was laid off from. <laughs> Could be any of them. Could be in the any. Seattle area. <laughs> I don't know if I've mentioned it before in this podcast, um, but I won't say the name now. But she went to a presentation where an aspect of that was literally telling people why don't not unionizing mm-hmm. was the right way to go. You've had some very terrible working conditions at some of your jobs. You worked at a textile-ish oh, company. That, was a, that wasn't bad because of... Yeah, that was bad. That was <laughs> I remember that being a bad yeah, job. Yeah, it was bad. It was racist. And it was also insane and uh, dangerous health-wise. It was yeah. a very bad place. Yeah. And that was not... That was very... Could have been a union place and is not. They wouldn't have unionized because yeah. it was the same... Well, I mean... It was uh, Asian workers doing piecework, very oppressed. Yeah. Basically, one one woman who was very good at her job, they cut her pay because she was too good at her job. So she made, you know, she basically could put too many pieces together. She worked too fast. She worked too fast. And so they said, well, we need to pay you less because uh, you're just making too much money because you're too good at it. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I mean, the other the other thing the other part of it was all the white people like me we all worked downstairs in air conditioned con- conditions. Yeah. Upstairs there was no air conditioning and people would faint in the summertime Too because hot. it got so hot up there. Mm-hmm. Jeez. I mean, heat rises. Nicole and I are part of the bar association, mm-hmm. which is not a union. It performs some union fun- some union like functions. We pay dues. Aww. They sometimes <laughs> will fight for our interests but you can also see because it's not i mean even with lawyers who are the top of the pyramid there are aspects of because there's it's still a stratification within that industry there are certain things where like i suspect if we were unionized that would not yeah there is a lot of unpaid internships sometimes i know people who've been unpaid workers for multiple years in order to get a position which I don't think a union would put up with. A good union yeah. would probably not. Well, and let's be clear. Um, I believe in unions. I support unions. Unions are not perfect. There, sure. there are many problems within unions themselves. There is stratification within unions. There is racism and sexism and gender discrimination and all of the same human things we deal with outside of unions, within unions. Yeah. Um, and there has been a lot of work done to try to equalize it um, in some unions more than others. Mm. But an interesting theme, particularly in Bread and Roses, and by the way, there's this great podcast, another podcast that I was listening to in preparation for this called Labor Days, Mm -hmm. which um, the whole focus of that podcast is around the history of unions. And one of the podcasts I listened to was all about the importance in the role of women in unions. Women were often excluded from unions, um, but they they drove unions, as we saw in Salt of the Earth. Right. Is even if they were not directly members of the union, the, the purpose they served in supporting the union membership in, in the domestic labor they provided in order to make union action possible the support that they they gave when their you know husbands more often than not were jailed and they had to assume all of the responsibilities of supporting their family the labor movement and unions would not exist without the efforts and support of women and particularly 
um, during some, you know, of the, the big labor movements. And they coincided with the suffragette movement, for example, mm-hmm. in, in England and the UK. Something we talked about on this podcast. Yeah. We watched that movie. Yeah. And, and played such an important role in, in making unions the force mm-hmm. that it is now. And we saw that in spades. Um, in Salt of the Earth and just seeing how integral these women were in in making the strike in the picket line possible and then sure. eventually, you know, securing what they asked for and, and winning that strike. That was one of the things. So I, I forced you all, I said earlier, to watch that scene from Pride mm-hmm. where she sings the song Bread and Roses. Um, and what I one of the things that I didn't notice about it when I first watched the movie is that it starts with a woman singing and then it starts with many women singing. Yes. And, and that then, is... And I the think, men are like, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and the men join in later. And I think that I didn't realize that was probably intentional. Oh, sure. Because that whole the bread and roses uh, strike was mainly immigrant women under, you know, oppressed mm-hmm. by the textile uh organized you know machine i guess yeah um and also rose schneiderman i didn't mention this before she is she was one of the people that um in i think it was 1917 she was influential in getting women the vote in new york state early before we got it nationally big takeaway oh women are badass (laughs) (laughs) who around the world (laughs) i do <laughs> no. Oh right. I'm not sorry. anymore. Yeah. The, the time of the cis white male, well, it's not over. It still exists. Yeah. It's still very much the world we live in, but it is starting to change and and we see how much women are a driving force behind powerful social movements mm-hmm. and how how good they are at collective action. Yeah. 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 Is there any other current <laughs> events you guys want to talk about specifically before we move to the other stuff, uh, one, other business? One thing, and I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I read an article this morning about uh, Donald Trump. Who? That horrible man. You've heard of him, surely. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> it was a, it was an opinion piece or maybe an analysis, and I can't remember it was he, if it was I, the New York Times or the Washington Post, but mm-hmm. it was about his use of the word breeding. Oh, yeah. Did you uh, read that? Breeding and, and infesting. Yes. Uh, and how that is basically a white supremacist word. Yeah, you call absolutely. that a dog whistle. It is straight from Hitler. <laughs> right. Like, yes. Also not. Also, <laughs> it is Nazi speak. Other animals hear this whistle. It's not even a dog whistle <laughs> at this point. He's yeah. It's just racism. Yeah. He, it's just blatant racism. They're, they're not. They're not trying to. No, it's code purposeful it anymore language. That hard. Yeah. So that, so that. Yeah. <laughs> that, sure. Yeah, and I mean. What I loved about these films um, is just how much we see intersectionality in them. Mm-hmm. We see how much labor movements intersect with the women's right movement, intersect with immigrants' right movement, intersect with um, gender equality and racial equality. And, you know, you, you brought up pride of um, LGBTQ rights mm-hmm. and all of these other movements is that none of them exist in a vacuum. And... I think particularly relevant to the era we're living through is that all of this sort of resistance that we see can only be truly impactful if it is intersectional 
Um, mm-hmm. That's been particular work that the women's movement, the modern women's movement right now, particularly the organizers of the women's marches the last two years have been grappling with in real time um, is how <laughs> oh, to be boy. intersectional, how to sort of buck white feminism and to to ally themselves and support in a lot of really important ways the other movements, the other struggles that are happening right now. I'm thinking particularly with these both of these movies, which focused on both documented and undocumented Mexican immigrants, mm-hmm. is how much that's that's prevalent. And so it resonates with the time we're in right now with so much vitriol, so much hatred towards immigrants in general, but particularly with that fucking wall <laughs> um, towards Mexican-Americans uh, and, and Mexican immigrants just people of Hispanic origin in general who are trying to come to this country and make a better life, who our economy could not exist without them and how, how much hatred is directed towards them by so many people Mm -hmm. um, and how important unions are in giving those people voice and rights and saying, Hey, just because we don't have the same papers as you doesn't mean you can treat us like shit. It Mm -hmm. all seems, I I don't know. I, for me, I'm, my thoughts on this have been evolving for, I don't know, a year and a half or so. I mean, they should have been evolving before that, but um, they've been evolving quite significantly in the last, since whenever that guy was elected. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, I lost my train of thought. Oh. <laughs> um, immigrants, immigrant rights, immigrants. LGBTQ. Here, I'll, I'll jump in with uh, 25 <laughs> seconds. Women's March. Don't don't tweet about Barbara Bush. That's uh, fucking sucks. No, don't, wasn't good. That's garbage. Don't don't post that. I, uh, what did they post? Just rest little, in peace and power, yeah. Barbara Bush, with a little picture of her. Yeah, like, and meanwhile, so that there's that um, there's a professor from yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a college in California who tweeted something about how Barbara Bush is racist. Yes. Yeah. And she's getting all kinds of death threats, uh-huh. and she's being the school's hurt. investigating. The her. school's investigating her. Just because someone is a powerful woman doesn't doesn't mean that they... is not enough. <laughs> well, and it's it, and when is, someone dies, it doesn't erase all the it bad doesn't things erase that all did. the bad no. things they did. And also, you know, the thing too, and I think it's very much lacking on Twitter, especially, <laughs> but also just in our dialogue, is that people are complex. No Mm -hmm. one is perfect. No one is all good things or all bad things. And people don't like to talk about this, especially taking any kind of nuance in race. And it comes from both, you know, both sides of of that argument is being racist doesn't always make you a terrible person. There are plenty of very nice racists that I know who in many other areas (laughs) of their life Mm -hmm. are perfectly lovely, but Mm -hmm. who harbor racist beliefs or or racist tendencies and we we want to put all the racists in a box and say you're all bad and you're all terrible and barbara bush there's a lot of problematic things about Mm -hmm. what she did the policies she advocated for the way that she influenced you know especially with a husband in the white house and then a son in the white house yeah sure she got two different policies you know and and that merits its own discussion but I don't know um, exactly, you know, the context of that tweet by the Women's March, but it it doesn't, all that Barbara Bush was cannot fit into a tweet. There are things that are problematic about her. There are things that were groundbreaking and incredible about the work that she did, particularly in advocating for education 
um, and the way that she showed up in the White House as a powerful woman at a time when that didn't always that, that you didn't see that in politics as much. Um, and it's complex and it's nuanced and it's not cut and dry and it's not black and white. And you can be lots and lots of different things. You can be an icon of women's rights and political political movements and you can be racist we see that throughout history it just doesn't fit in a what is it now 240 character tweet and I it's mean, valid I... to talk about both of those characteristics of a person you I know think so but the women's march is not going to do that no for an organization that has been dealing with you know problems with their ability to deal grapple with intersectionality don't do that just keep your mouth shut barbara bush can be fine you don't have to give give a rest in power barbara bush without any explanation because you're right like you can't fit that in a tweet but unless they want to talk about it it comes across as very supportive of a person that i don't think they should be supportive of that Mm -hmm. i should i would not want them to be supportive of Mm -hmm. it's just tone deaf to a lot of the struggles of the people they say they represent yeah that's me it merits more than a tweet if you're going to talk about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, put give out, it you give you it more put than out a tweet. statement and link to the statement. Contextualize that it. is a function of Twitter. Yes. and your social media person. <laughs> Take a screenshot <laughs> of, of, of a more well thought out and nuanced statement yeah. about Barbara or, or don't put one out. That is acceptable, yeah. Yeah. Just, guys. Yeah, take a pass on that one. So I sort of regrouped and sort of understood what it was I was trying to say before. What were you trying to say, Mom? It is that looking at it and all of the different information that I've absorbed for various reasons, including reading about antebellum, uh, the South, Mm -hmm. uh, reading about the loving case, uh, movies like this. It's like, there is this model. I don't know if it's a monolith. There's something, this hierarchy that the people in this movie are basically struggling against. We are struggling against constantly day to day, just conceptually just like everything that i think i have to look at it and say do i think this because i I, because this is something that i have reasoned out for myself or is it a thought that is in the uh, it's in the ether and i've absorbed it and so now i this is what i think because of that um just simple stupid stuff like uh, i was listening to love it or leave it this morning and this is an example of the sort of thing but this is sort of a trivial example Mm -hmm. absorbing the idea that you need to drink water all the time because it's good for you you won't know when you get dehydrated it's already too late Mm -hmm. that's propaganda that was forced into our uh, consciousness by Gatorade, basically. I think it was Gatorade was the company or, uh, you know, it's a corporate. <laughs> basically, they want you to drink all the time and sure. feel like if you don't stay hydrated all the time, you're going to... Yeah, it's bad. There's just all of this. I'm starting to recognize I have this thought because... Some other person is because stuck some, it in there. Or, yeah, because it came from watching TV, and this repeatedly happens on TV, and so now I believe that this is real, but it's, it's not. This isn't actual reality. This is what somebody wants me to believe so that I don't fight the power, essentially. <laughs> we live in an era of fake news, Deb. It's all fake news. But it's not just this era. It's been all the eras. Can we I... just didn't give a name to it before. Can I share a thought I've been having? I've been trying to put this into smarter words but i think that it has been we've been talking about the stratification and one of the things i've thought about is as a straight white man if i think to myself well 
what is the social hierarchy in the United States? Who's at the top? Who's at the bottom? Where does everybody fit? Um, I can do that in my head. I think everybody can probably do that with relative accuracy mm, to each other. Disagree, but go ahead. I think that... <laughs> if they're intellectually honest with themselves, right. they should be able to do right. it. Right. Now, I, you know, and, I, and the thing is, that is not something that is in it. No one's ever sat me down and taught me. Well, here's who's at the top, and here's who's next, and here's where this fits. But it's something that I have absorbed through a lifetime of social cues, or whatever you want to describe that as, is like there is there are elements of our society and elements of like racism and sexism that are so built in that you absorb them and you know them. You could write it out on a piece of paper and say, well, here's where everyone fits in society, and no one's ever told me this, but it is expressed non-vocally no one ever has to say well here's here's where everybody fits but i figured out anyway just you watch a movie figure it out it was it was pushed into your mind yes. one, can, of, one of the things i can watch a movie a bad movie and figure out oh well that's why that character is right. treated low status because they're black or whatever it is and i don't have to try and puzzle out well why is that it's like oh no that's just how society has built that is this movie is expressing some unexpressed uh, unvocalized thing. Right. So Jacob is forcing me to read a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. I love yeah, that book. I'm, I'm reading it now too. I just keep asking you to read it. He you said you would. so good. I did. It was kind of like, so he loaned me the book and then I didn't read it and didn't read it and didn't now read I'm it. Now I'm like, well, you borrowed it and I have to read it. Right. It's kind of like when somebody loaned you a video, but you don't really <laughs> want to watch it. Um, and it isn't that I didn't want to read it. It's just that I didn't want to take the time to read it. So I started reading it. Um, and it's at the same time, too. It's... yeah, it's not very long. I'm about a third of the way through. But one of the one of the things that has it's already affected me and yep. my thinking in that. Um, so I'm editing a past episode from February. I'm about halfway through it. It's the episode where we watched. It might be all the King's Men, actually. I think it is. It says the episode with Katrina or is it the one after? No, that? it's the one after that. It's uh, Steve. Okay. Yeah, that's all. Um, and it's about Huey P. Long, and uh, there's some point where I make this statement about how helping poor, poor white Southerners helps African Americans, which is a horrible statement that I made. First, I should have said I should have at least qualified poor African Americans. Not all African Americans are poor, um, but also that's not really true. And it's something that I learned from that book. It's that they have different issues, and just addressing the issues of poor people doesn't address the issues of, I'm sorry, trust addressing the issues of poor white people does not address right. the issues of other poor people because they have different issues and you need to, and, and that the that the purpose behind the idea that if you, it's one of those concepts that's been pushed into us that just address poorness and that will take care of it. Take, mm -hmm. Address poverty and everybody will be fine. Well, be great. Right, is a way of avoiding talking about race and the effects that race has on on individuals and communities, we don't have to talk about it if we just agree to or believe that if you just address poverty in general, it'll fix all the issues, because it won't. And that's one of the most irritating things about the New York Times think pieces about working class America and why they support Trump, because what they're really talking about is white people. Right. Um, and are ignoring yeah. a large swath of working class America who didn't and don't um, support 
Donald Trump. And, and not just a large swath, the majority. The majority, yes. Right, more. <laughs> um, and it was one of the fundamental criticisms of Bernie Sanders' campaign mm-hmm. was that he um, very much focuses on class issues right. and ignores to the detriment of minorities their more complex role in those class issues. So... Yes, right. I agree well, with that book. If you all do a podcast investigating privilege and race and all of that, let me know. A little bonus episode <laughs> to join. We can talk more about Ijeoma's book, which is fantastic. Everyone should read it. So you want to talk about race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem is that, that the people who need to read it will not read it. Yeah. Sure. Everyone needs to read it. <laughs> yeah, it's a quick read. It's extremely powerful. Like I that very is, well That written. is a really good point is sort of, um, you know, and especially with the four of us and a lot of the people we know is um, we're not the audience that would most benefit. From I, disagree. I disagree for myself. Oh, also, I yeah, can stand up for myself. I'm going to backtrack say, from what no. I said. I need to read that book. Yeah, right. Okay. That's, I, I, I'm using it on a scale of levels of improvement. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate In terms the of who, who needs no. <laughs> the largest improvement um, are the people who don't even recognize that there is a difference between yeah. class and race. People who aren't even at that level. Mm-hmm. would benefit the most and i don't know how you open them up to this kind of reading material if they're not even willing to acknowledge that there is an issue Ijeoma well, talks about that in her book yeah. <laughs> yes but how do you get to read the book you before? can't you can't make people you can't it's like that that was that you can bring lead a horse to water lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink um this is a much deeper conversation yeah. than probably fits into this podcast but Ijeoma talks about that very clearly and eloquently in her book about the people who most need need in our our estimation who could most benefit from any kind of deep introspection or reflection about their own racial attitudes and the way that they walk through the world and what it means to have privilege and how nuanced and complex privilege is i am an incredibly privileged person in many many ways i am also a woman of color and the daughter of an immigrant in that that makes my my privilege more complex than if i was a straight white man um those 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 privileges are 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 different but but overlap and it's much more complex than than many of us are willing to investigate within ourselves what that means and how we operate and move through the world and you can't force people to have that kind of thought i'm genuinely fine if that's the answer i am over the new york times think pieces of how (laughs) we're going to relate to those people um and I'm using that in a condescending way um, because I don't think it's particularly um, effective. I don't think you can't, it's the right you way. You can't make people think differently or think deeper. I, I have fought that battle <laughs> in my own family too many yeah. times to count um, in my own friend groups and with people I love very dearly who just don't get it. Yeah. Or I, I don't I hear don't me. Think and I think the people who want to compromise, who want to reach out and sort of negotiate that world, um, are doing more harm to progressive movements than those who are like, listen, I don't, I don't care if those people are racist. I'm not interested in putting a hand out to them. Let's focus on the rest of us who are the majority and what we can do to move things forward. But there are people among, there are people who are with us who also don't understand like privilege, for example is a is it's hard for people who have a lot of it like me i i am privileged in every way 
except one. I'm not a man. <laughs> right. Right. I have money. I was middle class. I went to college. I, you know, there was a period of my time in my life when I was poor, but I'd never felt at risk. Right. I wasn't so poor that I was scared. I've never really. Yeah. I've got all of the things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I can still learn to understand and accept privilege for although I and there are there are people who can't because they have to accept that that accepting privilege when you have a lot of it means that all the stuff you have is undeserved is not necessary <laughs> not all of it's deserved right. right it's not that it's undeserved it's that but they feel that way. Just, they feel right. like everything has been dismissed right you want me to say that I don't that the stuff that I have that I've worked for and I've felt my work inside of me that it it's meaningless because it was all handed to me but it wasn't because I worked for it right they have to somehow be able to reconcile working hard with you maybe didn't have to work as hard as somebody else but I'm more interested in having a conversation with someone like you who is open to the concept of privilege than I am with someone who refuses to acknowledge that it's a characteristic I would, I know you, I'm sorry, you had something you wanted to say. I, Go ahead. I have two, hopefully, quick anecdotes about this. One is that I have found that book in particular uh, really helpful to me because although I, because I, I am receptive to the ideas in it. I think it's that it contains thoughts that we can't have on our own. I, I would say that the, that because the book is very well written and it is generally directed towards me, <laughs> As I feel like it is someone who's a woman Ijeoma of color. It is. literally saying, says, I wrote this for you. I wrote this for <laughs> yeah. you, straight white privileged people. But she uses, she's very careful about saying, well, what if, you know, each chapter is like, what about white privilege? And she talks about it, but she's very careful. It's very, the chapters are very short. They're very clear. And it's like, well, here's why that's, here's, here's how you deal with that question. And I have found that personally helpful to me as a white man when being with, some of my white male friends, when they have that same question, of being able to go like, oh, I, I know the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. I don't have to struggle to be like, well, what about this? I can be like, no, I know here. Somebody has laid out for me pretty clearly what the answer to that question is. And I have found that personally helpful to be able to describe it to somebody who maybe is not as receptive as I am, but is receptive and just needs me to tell them <laughs> who would feel comfortable talking to me about race because I'm also a white mm -hmm. man and I can go, no, I actually can think I actually have a good place to start with this, which is like, I have a friend who came around to the idea of white privilege, but was like, you know, it always felt weird to me because I've worked really hard for what I've got. How can I be, how can I be privileged? To me, it sounds, you know, and, and the way it was described is like, well, to me, it sounds more like people of color are disadvantaged in some way. And having read this book, that question is dealt with in a very, like, clear, direct way where I can be like, well, here's why that doesn't work. Like, here's why that is the wrong way to think about this or the wrong way to look at it, even though we're basically on the same page in general. The other anecdote that I think ties into this is right now, Ijeoma Luo is in a, is, is, is in a, a spat with a, another writer who has quoted her from this book and something she did, which is... She basically says, well, on Martin Luther King Day 2000, a few years ago, she decided, well, I am going to take any of my detractors and I'm going to respond to everything they say with a Martin Luther King quote. 
she did that all day and said at the end of the day well there's this one person who i basically started talking to him and by the end they apologized and said you know what you're right i'm sorry you've explained it to me hmm. and in this book it's quoted she's quoted in comparison to another uh i think another black female writer is saying like well this lady is mad but ijioma luo mm. look you can convert people if you try hard enough and ijioma <laughs> luo is basically like that's not that was problematic a, <laughs> it was like that was a terrible experience and i would never do that again like that was an experiment i did and it worked for one guy and required all my emotional energy for an entire day and that's the problem is requiring people of color to educate and take on that emotional labor right. when it should be done by allies. And that's what I was going to say. There is a real value in this book for me as a white person because I can read it and use it on my white friends. Uh, you shouldn't be expected to do that. <laughs> like <laughs> I can, You and I should have a different perspective on this because it's a lot more work for you than it is for mm -hmm. me. I don't have to put myself in any sort of emotional danger. Nothing's going to happen to me. Like This book's very useful to me. Or bear the burden of proof that racism exists. Yeah. And that privilege exists. And, and that different experiences of the world exist. And honestly, at the end of that conversation, if my friend says, oh, I disagree with you, you're an idiot. It's not an impact. Like, at the end of the day, it's like, well, that doesn't really say anything about me. It's, it sucks for you. But, like, it, there's, a, there's a burden that I can take on mm -hmm. that this book helps with that makes it... <laughs> this is something I should be doing. This is work I should be doing that, that you shouldn't or you shouldn't have to. And I think that helps. That's a, that's a perspective that I have where it's like there's, there's, there's less of a, it's less weight for me to pull, you know? So read the book is I think is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. read that book. Oh, it's so well. It's, it's just, really good. It's so good. And, and she follow does... her on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, mm -hmm. her yeah. everyday musings are valuable. She's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And she explains things so clearly and, and gets into these very complex, nuanced topics with so much clarity and honestly so much grace in mm -hmm. just the way that she invites people into this conversation despite this like <laughs> lifetime of emotional burden yeah. of, of trying to have these kinds of conversations with people. She wrote a book that is so accessible and I've been having these conversations and thinking about this my entire life. And I find so much value mm -hmm. in what she's writing. And, and it helps me think about the own, my, my own work that I still have so much work to do on examining my own privilege and how I interact with people in different situations than I came from and recognizing how to leverage my privilege and my power and how to seed some of it in order to achieve the kind of equality that I say I believe in and that I, I really want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. That's a great <laughs> podcast. This is great. Yeah. I love this. I love talking about these things. <laughs> Good. Well, you're a good guest. Uh, do you want to tell us about the cocktail, which was spectacular? Are we are do, do plugs first? Yeah, normally we oh, do plugs first. I'm sorry. Let's do plugs first. I'm going to do two plugs because I've already done them. Yeah. <laughs> watch the movie Pride. It's delightful. Is there? Uh, do you know where we can watch it? I think you can watch it almost anywhere. Uh, you okay. can watch it on Amazon for sure. Okay, great. Um, and then uh, read So You Want to Talk About Race. So you like it so far? <laughs> yes. I mean, it is. I mean, the concepts... They are, I was, what I was trying to say before is that these aren't things I couldn't arrive from at that perspective. There's no way that I could, and she sort of talks about it, that in the book, that I can't have the perspective that she has, mm -hmm. but she can help me to see her perspective. 
yeah. like the uh, you know the idea that uh, in order to address poverty for African Americans you have to you actually have to address the or at least acknowledge that race is a factor right and massive factor right but all my life I've been told that if you just take care of poverty all the poor people will be taken care of and race is not an issue it's a class issue yeah. and I absorb that but that's not real and she makes it very clear why that's not true right uh, which also you know I I feel like I'm mentally I've got there's this um I have come to understand that there is this powerful force that is what people call the patriarchy mm -hmm. sure. or whatever this um that has been around since forever but i just didn't recognize it yeah and now i recognize it and it's like everywhere and you i can't feel not it now. see it yeah. yeah yeah it's like the matrix mm -hmm. <laughs> now you know we're all me. Cannot unsee. But let's not talk about red pills. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. Some things, some references from the Matrix work here. Some don't. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow a bunch of shitty dudes. Neo-Nazis. Co-opted co two trans persons movie mm. as their as their thing. <sighs> <laughs> uh, okay, so my plugs are um, less relevant, but... Uh, if you haven't watched The Magicians, the first two seasons are on Netflix, and it's an amazing show. It is really original writing. It really does not follow tropes that you're used to in any genre. Um, this one is a fantasy sort of genre, and the first season is very dark, and the second season is very funny. Um, the third season should be up soon, but definitely check that one out. And then also, um, there's a brand new show on the BBC called Killing Eve. And it's really good. It stars Sandra O. Oh. What type of... Um... Um, it's about a um, spy organization. And they're sort of tracking a female serial killer. Oh. And it's really good. <laughs> it's cool. like two episodes, I think, of aired. The third one airs tomorrow. Um, but yeah, really worth checking out. Again, like original sort of funny, dark take on a genre. So check those out. Um, I have two very quick plugs for two podcasts I've become interested in recently. Uh, one is Opening Arguments, which is a law podcast. It's a lawyer and a non-lawyer. Uh, they talk about current events in the legal world. Um, and I was, you know, recommended this for the episode where they explain the Stormy Daniels stuff. And I second was, yeah, that Which was really interesting to me because after I listened to that episode, I was like, oh, this has been misreported. Like, I did not understand at mm -hmm. all the significance of this till I had a lawyer who was well-informed explain, like, this is not a sex scandal. That is not the issue here. That is the thing that is reported on, but has Massive nothing to do. Massive legal ramifications. Yeah. And I did not understand that at all. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, this is huge. Um, so go listen to that podcast. Start with the episode about the Stormy Dan. This is from a couple months ago. The Stormy Daniels lawsuit. Mm -hmm. They have follow it every week. Now they check in on like what's happened next. And there's been obviously a lot of stuff going on. Can you repeat the name of the podcast? Opening arguments. All right. uh, the other podcast I would recommend that I just started listening to is called Citations Needed. It is a very left leaning podcast that deals with similar stuff as. Chapo Trap House or Love It or Leave It, but they pick a very specific question or topic and do a deep dive. 
I would recommend the episode about are there what is a reasonable Republican, which hmm. is their discussion of like how does that term become popularized and how little that has to do with the actual makeup of the country mm -hmm. and their political views. Um, the episode after that is about MSNBC and how that has become what mm -hmm. it's become. And mm -hmm. they interview somebody with a disguised voice who used to work at MSNBC determining, asking them basically, why does MSNBC spend about 90% of its runtime about a Russia about Russia and almost no time about basically any other political issue that mm -hmm. ever comes across. Um, it's really interesting. It's really well done. And they tackle these topics in a really in-depth investigative way that is, it's good. So check those out. Cool. Do Jeremy? I have to do plugs too? Please do. <laughs> okay. We saved um, you best for last. Yes. So um, if you're interested in learning more about the labor movement, a podcast I recently started listening to is called Labor Days. It is labor spelled the British way because it is a British <laughs> podcast. So if you like listening to British people talk about the labor movement, this podcast is for you. Um, very good. It was very helpful in preparing for this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also second Deb's recommendation of Ijeoma Ulu's book, So You Want to Talk About Race. It is fantastic. I am also reading it right now. And the third book or third thing, second book I would recommend is called The Power by Naomi Alderman and it is particularly relevant to what we talked about today because it is fiction it is a novel but it basically the premise of the book talks about what would happen if women had the same kind of power as men and it is incredibly well written <laughs> very compelling incredibly interesting to read and thought-provoking and um, gives me a lot of energy in thinking about the prospect of, of more women gaining especially political power in the United States and across the world and, and what that what that could do for the world. I just want to piggyback on what you and Deb have said, and I guess Jacob as well, because he recommended the book. If anybody's looking for it, the way you spell her name is first name I-J-E-O-M-A, last name O-L-U-O. -O. She's a local author. Charmy and I have both seen I her. I saw her at Benaroy Hall and I freaked out so much. <laughs> I got so embarrassed and like basically yeah. like a fangirl because she is incredible and I've followed her for years and oh my Neither God, of us could so work cool. up the confidence to say I hi. couldn't. My sister made fun of Aww. me for a full hour and a half because I was too nervous to go up to her and say hi and tell her how much I respect and admire her. Yeah. Ijeoma, if you're listening... I think you're amazing. <laughs> and we're sure she friend. is. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> totally. All right. Is it cocktail time? Yeah. I think it is. All right. So this is probably the most, uh, I don't know, uh, artistic looking. It's definitely the most visually <laughs> stunning uh, cocktail, cocktail that I've made. Um, for some reason. Okay. So I wanted to do something uh, something Tequila, to do with right? mining and also at some, you know, something mostly that really i just wanted yeah. to and i had i had i guess i must have seen a youtube of somebody showing you how to make a hollow ice sphere mm -hmm. uh so i looked that up and i decided to make a fairly simple drink it has similar components to a margarita in that it has a citrus juice it has tequila it has a little bit of orange curacao dry mm -hmm. curacao because that's one of my go-to yeah that's, things. that's your thing um and my mom used to make a margarita that was uh or 
margarita that was based on using um, limeade concentrate, frozen limeade concentrate. concentrate. Oh. Um, and also, for some reason, I decided to use the butterfly pea again to make the tequila it. blue. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure why I went with that. Maybe just for visual mm-hmm. stuff. So it's basically got the ingredients of a margarita, except it's lemonade instead of it's frozen lemonade instead of limeade, mm-hmm. tequila, dry curacao, some black lemon bitters. And did you try limeade versus lemonade? Do you know if that I did try it? limeade. I also tried doing something similar to a tequila sunrise, mm-hmm. uh, but they were all great. There was no <laughs> there was no one that was. They're all about the same. Yeah, they were all about the same, and they all look beautiful because this sphere of ice just makes everything look great. Did you mention the cherry part? Oh, I made some cherry grenadine. Um, that's more from the tequila sunrise. They, it it has grenadine. Grenadine's usually made from pomegranate juice, but I had some tart cherry juice, and that turned out pretty good flavor-wise. So this was like, it's like a cocktail glass with lemon, frozen lemonade ice. Sort of a, yeah, crushed or slushy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then a hollow ice sphere on top of that, and that is filled with... Put the grenadine in first, because it's the heaviest, and yeah. then I put the dry curacao, and then the tequila, and they layer automatically, uh, just because Cause of their... because of their weight. And then I uh, used some salt that I got at, can't remember what the salt, that mm-hmm. salt store is called, uh, that is lava salt. So it's black and flake, it's flakes of black right. uh, salt and then uh, some copper dust that's edible. Just mm. because they were Cause mining. Know, because of <laughs> yeah. mining and stuff. What do we watch next time? Oh, let's, uh, let's... shoot. I couldn't remember, so I, now I need to open some things. There will be some <laughs> clicking. You the clicking that you hear is Jacob. I sent a picture of the cocktail to you. I oh, got a good you. shot of it because I know you guys post you. pictures of them. So. Yeah, we um we will post the pictures on Instagram. So we have two documentaries lined up. Actually, okay, yeah. What's the next episode? Uh, one of them is called Primary. It's 1960, so we're moving into the 60s. Yay. We have three 60s episodes. Okay. Uh, this one is. Uh, a documentary produced by Robert Drew mm-hmm. called Primary. It's a documentary film about the 1960 Wisconsin primary election between John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey. Okay. Uh, and that's for the Democratic nomination. Okay. And that is versus a documentary called Wiener. Oh, I've watched that movie. <laughs> oh, you have? Well, uh-huh. you might have to watch it again. It's, it's very a, good. A film following Anthony Wiener and his wife, Huma Abedin. Ex-wife. Uh, Right. Ex-wife? Now ex-wife. ex-wife. <laughs> Beginning with his time in Congress and his 2011 resignation. Yeah, it's wild. Especially because the movie, more stuff has happened since that movie came out. Yep, yep. those are our next two movies. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Yay. Yay. Thanks, Thanks for having Charmy. me on your podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Victory to the miners! <laughs> In the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill of scray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people here.
singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. As we go marching, marching, 